I'm Tyler. I'm Megan. And this is The Office Hours, the podcast where two literature professors analyze the great American story. Hey, Megan. Hey, Tyler. I feel like we got a lot to look forward to today. <laughs> this is uh, an iconic episode. It is. It really is. When I told some some of our fans, uh-huh. uh, which I got to talk about that, but when when I told um, uh, two of our fans we were recording, um, that it was the 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 convicts, there was a lot of excitement because I like I think this I think Prison Mike is like got to be one of in the top ten maybe iconic he, aspects of The Office. What do you think? Would he would he rank for you? He's one of the top 10 tattoos. I think we know that. That's for sure. That's for sure. But Tyler, speaking of fans of The Office, before we actually get into today's episode, I think you have recently received some support from some fans in the form of expanding your education in magic. And I thought you might want to share that. And I thought we might want to reflect on the growing affinity between you and Michael Scott. Uh, well, first, um, so, uh, Corey and Andy, who are like our super fans. Um, and, uh, uh, in fact, I haven't, I have a, a message from Corey, uh, but I, um, got together with them over the past weekend or the, what, um, anyway, time is confusing me, but nonetheless, uh, when they showed, when I, when I met up with them, they presented me with a, my very own Dundee. And with a um, uh, a book uh, uh, about magic, and specifically about forces, like ways to force in magic, and uh, this <laughs> recalls, you know, prior to the Stanford uh, furniture debate, which has become, I think, our most controversial discussion. Before that, <laughs> sure. for 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 longtime listeners, you'll recall that the previous <laughs> sticky debate that we had was over the. Uh, uh, gym mind trick, you know, yeah. to, to what, you know, moving things with his mind or whatever. And Megan's belief that this was entirely improv and, a, and evidence of, you know, Pam's quickness. Whereas I believe that it was all somehow planned out and desperately turned to magic as a, <laughs> as a way to justify this. But uh, I got to say, Corey and Andy supporting my, point of view there um on the other oh, hand wow. also i think giving me a book so that i could better support my argument i have not yet read it so i am going to read the book and report <laughs> back but we did take a picture that i sent to you uh and we should put on the instagram so that everybody can um see what i look like but also uh can see the delight in my face upon receiving this gift yes i love it that they've given you evidence to build up your case it does sort of feel like maybe each season we get some one really controversial argument where we cannot come to a point of agreement won't let it go won't let it go well the forces thing so the forces thing in magic was the idea right correct me if this is wrong but that what a magician does is basically force people into the outcome that the magician wants like they manipulate their mind in some way that gets them to the desired outcome right i mean 
I buy that. Well, no, to be clear, I don't buy that the gym successfully does that because I think it I think it takes more extensive study than Jim has put in for this prank. So I'm still not conceding on that. But I think that is really, really interesting. And I am always willing to believe that I am being psychologically manipulated <laughs> at a deep level. <laughs> Uh, I think the forces would work on me spectacularly. See, I I feel like, you know, you I don't know. I feel like you're a you're an iconoclast and a contrarian. I feel that you are not easily persuaded by by hype or uh, you're not a person who jumps on cultural bandwagons. You know, <laughs> I just I feel like I'm like t- always about a heartbeat away from joining a cult, and I feel like you you know, are clear eyed in, in, uh, uh anyway, yeah. I'm the one who takes a strong stand on bottled water, <laughs> which a topic that we're going to come back to momentarily. Okay. Um, right. so, bef- uh, do you have anything, do you want to head over to one of our, um, you know, somewhere in the office? Let's head over to accounting. Mm. Do you have any regr- revisions and regrets this week? I don't. Do you? Tyler, I regret nothing. <laughs> I listened back to our podcast. I really thought I was going to regret suggesting that uh, Toby might not be doing 10-minute miles in his mm. race that I think was a 10K minimum, which mm. is a 6.2-mile run. I mm. thought I was going to feel bad about that, and like it was just based on my own insecurity about my running pace or something. But I decided, no. Toby's not running seven minute miles. I looked up what would be a good 10K time because I'm guessing, I'm not guessing, I mean, it might be a marathon, it might be a half marathon, but I'd say 10K is probably the minimum that he's doing. So I was like giving him the benefit of the doubt in -hmm. terms of time, because if he's running a marathon, it's 100% not a seven minute mile because the winners run it in like, what do they run that in a five minute mile? Something a little more than like, it's insane. But I did a little bit of research. To be clear, this was really surface level research. I found one source did not vet its credibility at all. And I did not consult any other sources. But this is marathonhandbook.com. And my question was what's a good 10K time? They say a good 10K time is 49.43, according to our data set, which calculates race finish times by age and ability. This number is based on the average 10K time across all ages and genders worldwide. A 10K time under 50 minutes averages about an eight-minute mile. Oh. So I can see Toby doing an eight-minute mile. I don't see him doing a seven, and so I'm sticking with it. Wow. That's a bold stance. (laughs) That's a bold stance. (laughs) I, I kind of felt a little bit like... You know, when Pam says about uh, Carol, well, at least I didn't dress as a slutty cheerleader. I feel like I'm kind of making that same move and being like, well, at least I didn't pretend that I ran it in seven minute miles. Mm. But I am still sticking with it. Are you persuaded by the idea that the reason he is, if he's inflating it, as you're arguing, is he doing it to impress Pam? Or do you think he's just doing it as like... yeah, I think I'm, I think I'm persuaded that he wants to impress Pam. 
Mm. Well, let's head over to Pam's uh, corner. Let's um, head over. Is that what we call it, Pam's corner? Because it's, is it a corner? Receptionist desk. Receptionist desk. Or I, Pam's corner, both. Okay. Um, well, I'm thrilled to say <laughs> we have uh, uh, an email that's okay. come through. And this is from the aforementioned Corey. Okay. Uh, if uh, for longtime listeners, anytime I'm ever saying like, oh, we need like a podcast archivist or like historian, I'm always basically referencing Corey, who has, I believe, listened to every episode of the podcast and remembers the things that we've said <laughs> and reminds me frequently I'm like, rough. oh, you've, you know, yeah, yeah, you guys talked about that like over here, like, oh, you know, and uh, anyway, it, it, I'm like so honored and mortified that she listens um and uh, but she has written in so are you ready i am ready All also right. being and, honored and mortified i think that's the perfect combination of word choices for this that's how i feel i'm gonna come back to that but um okay here we go and i'll maybe uh you know, stop me whenever you want to provide comments okay. so okay. hello tyler and megan and the email is called stray observations this is Corey, longtime listener first time writer to start off, I just want to tell you both how much joy your podcast brings me. I oh, often have a lot. I know, right? I'm so touched by that. Yes. I often have a lot of thoughts while listening to the pod, but because I listen while driving or running, I never have the chance to write them down. This week, though, a few things you said really stood out to me, so I was able to retain my thoughts and jot them down as mm -hmm. soon as I returned from my run. Okay, here goes. Point number one. Having established that I have some familiarity with running, I want mm. to defend Toby. <laughs> it is entirely plausible that he ran seven-minute miles in a race. If he were running a 5K, seven-minute miles would probably put Toby in the first uh, quarter of finishers of a race. But he'd still be pretty far behind the winners, who are probably running their 5Ks at paces closer to five minutes and 30 seconds or 5.45. Toby looks like the kind of dude who can work in an office all week and then go out for a 50 plus <laughs> mile week or go out for 50 plus mile weekend bike rides. So I bet he has the cardio fitness to pull off seven minute miles. <laughs> do you want to respond to this part of the email? Oh, I do. And I got to tell you in my calculations that I hadn't factored in a 5K as an option, which for our American listeners who don't work with kilometers, that's a 3.1, 3.1 miles. Oh, I'm so ignorant about all of this that I'm just trying not to say anything. Just, maybe you can offer conversions into mongoose and snake speed here. <laughs> um, but 3.1, I mean, I may be taking baggage from being not that fast and part of this might be feeling personally sad about being a slower runner than Toby, which opens up all kinds of problems in myself. What is it about me that needs to be better than Toby at running? I'm the Dwight in this scenario. Uh, oh my God, I'm Dwight. You become what you hate. I can't just let Toby have this. And... I mean, you previewed at the beginning of the episode that, like, my relationship with Michael Scott is changing. <laughs> Does this change your relationship with Dwight? 
I'm pretty, I'm pretty, <laughs> I'm concerned about this. I will say, based on, again, this one article that I've consulted, and this is with the 10K as the distance that I am estimating this race to be, that a male elite runner should be able to run a 10K in under 38 minutes. That means it's six, like just over six minute miles. Mm. If the elite runner, and I don't know how elite elite is here, because the super elite, like the best runners in the world are definitely more like five minutes um, and probably a little less for a 10K. Please, please listeners know that you should not take this as a claim to any kind of accuracy. But all I'm saying is if elite runners are doing it in like six minute miles, I still don't feel like Toby's at seven. I think he's at eight. And here's why. Here's why. Okay. I think Toby is, I think Toby's identity as a runner, I think he'd call himself a jogger. Oh. I feel like that's a word that has kind of fallen out of the exercise discourse, but it was very much there earlier. And it was when you're, you know, you're there, you're there to do it, but you're not really competitive about pace. Like, I guess I really should call myself a jogger. I mean, I don't know. Do I'm jogging races. Like, do you do 5Ks and such? I do some races, but when I'm racing, it's not really like a race. It's like, How are I'm we trying, like Pam, I'm trying to accomplish something. So I start with when the first thing Toby says when he says, I finished. That's where I'm at. And this is the thing for me is that if you're saying the people who are like, I finished are different than the people who get really good times. Mm -hmm. Am I just off that? I think seven is really, really good. Is Corey running these things in seven minutes? If so, my mind is blown. That's really fast. I shouldn't just uh, wantonly speculate on, on the podcast, but I will. And if I recall correctly, well, first, I know for a fact that Corey was actively involved in like um, track. And I think uh, unless I'm, is that the correct? I'm, I'm pretty sure yeah, it was yeah. cross country. Cross, like, cross country. I think they go a little longer distances. I think it was. But that. it's likely she did both. I feel like a lot of those people do both. But I also want to say and OK, she's going to have to write back in. And this is this is going to be I feel really bad. But I kind of think that she was like the captain of the team. Or something like that. And I guess my question to you is like, if you're the captain of something, does that mean you're especially good at it? Or that you're especially like, it's like winning um, Miss Congeniality or like, uh, <laughs> um, what do they call it on drag rate? Maybe it is Miss Congeniality on drag rates. Anyway, but like the, you know, you have the heart and soul, you bring the team together. Like, is the captain good exceptional question. or do you know? Let me also speculate and say this. Yeah. <laughs> this is going to kill Corey. As she's listening to this, like just screaming <laughs> into the void. <laughs> this totally ignorance-based commentary. I feel like the captain on a track team is both. I feel like you both have the Miss Congeniality Award and you're good with people and good with organizing people and you're respected and there's all of that stuff. And then there's also that you have to be good. I also, I don't think it's, I don't think I'm going to ever be the captain of the track team. For example, I would posit that Toby's not going to be the captain of the track team actually for both reasons. Damn. But I, I think it includes. You hate, you hate Toby so much. I don't hate Toby. I, 
I don't love Toby, but I don't <gasps> hate Toby. This episode is the crux of Toby, of my Tobyism or whatever. My Toby. Oh my god! Okay, I can't wait to unpack that. The crux <laughs> of your Tobyism. Okay, good. Um, good. I don't even. That, that sounds like I'm anti-Toby though. So my Toby, Toby. No, you be a pro, a pro Tobyism. My Toby Philia. Anyway, um, Toby Philia. Yeah. Well, uh, hold on. Where were we? Oh yeah. Also, okay. This is just a random sidebar, but. There was this one time where a number of the um, faculty in the English department, this is like pre-COVID um, and before I was dead inside, we all went out to one of the football games, like the campus football games. Did you say before I was dead inside? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I was, you know, like, and- Discuss so, that after recording. <laughs> yeah, I might, I might revise it or regret that. Anyway, so- um, a bunch of us in the English department went to one of the football games. And I thought, and I think like, I think I was right, but whatever. I thought we were going with a slight camp vibe. You know, we're like ironically oh, going to the football game. I can just see. I was going to say, I was like, this is, seems like a strange place for you. <laughs> <laughs> a thing I'm not unused to hearing. Um, but so. Students we, were like, Dr. Bradway? <laughs> <laughs> so a bunch of us go to the football game, you know, and and um and there was just this decisive moment where I said something fairly snarky, you know, and like I was kind of saying basically like what what okay, I I this I probably shouldn't record this, but whatever. I was basically sort of saying like why would anybody do sports <laughs> especially <laughs> if you're not going like why would you kind of go to college for sports if you're not mm -hmm like in the tippy top of sportdom or whatever, you know, yeah. and I, I can't even say what that would be the NCAA. I don't know, whatever, you know, and everybody got real quiet and then kind of turned to me and like one by one, it became clear that like <gasps> every person that I was with, like not only were they like heavily involved in sport and like found these to be like meaningful aspects of their life and identity or whatever, but they were all like, captains in one way or another of the high school or college such and such what? and yes and I, I i mean on the one hand i was like whoops you know i really don't like invalidating other people's you know identities and lives and whatnot on the other hand i was like i just don't think it's fair that you you don't i don't think you get to be like a nerdy academic yeah, and like uh, an athlete. I just don't, I feel like, you know, and so. Totally agree. Everyone gets one or the other. <laughs> you get one thing. Like you can't be hot and smart. Okay. Totally. Like, I'm sorry. And like, you don't get that. Like you, I, I don't love back in the day. I talk about this with my students all the time. I'm like in the eighties and nineties, you look at those movies and it's horrible, right? There's clicks and it's like the jocks, the nerds, you know, the burnouts or whatever. And like, the idea is that, you know, you can only be one. Yeah. And yeah, it's terrible because there's all these cliques and they like mm -hmm. hate each other or whatever. But mm -hmm. I feel like contemporary pop culture, you know, at least it seems for young people is kind of like, you have to be the jock and like, you know, um, straight A's and you have to be like really charming and you have to be all the things. Yeah. And I just don't, I don't feel like that's fair, but also this is all just speaking out of my own unbridled, uh, insecurity <laughs> and uh and uh anyway um why did i mention this oh right because Corey knows more about running 
And what I did want to ask you, though, do you agree with her claim here? Toby looks like the kind of dude who can work in an office all week and then go out for a 50 plus go out for 50 plus mile weekend bike rides. A, is that true? And then B, does a 50? Well, I also don't know. Is a 50 mile bike ride like a lot? And do miles on a bike correlate to miles in running? I do agree with Corey on this. I do feel like he is that guy. I could see Toby having one of those, you know, the kind of tight, like the spandex um, biking, like a Josh uniform, a Josh biking uniform. I could see Toby going out and being a great runner or a great bike rider. I also could see Toby going out and doing marathons, like doing long distance running. It's just that I don't see Toby being fast. Mm. And I think there's a problem. I think that Corey and I are opposite on opposite ends of this spectrum. Corey being fast, me being slow. And I think that for both of us, our perspective is limited. It is maybe skewing our interpretation of Toby. So while I think I might be expecting too little of Toby in terms of his mile time, I think Corey might be thinking running is too easy and expecting too much. Oh, the gauntlet has been thrown down. Corey, you'll have to write back in and tell us. <laughs> you have a, probably a lot of things to correct in what we've just said. Uh, We're going to have a lot to revise and regret next time. All right. Well, let me proceed with uh, Corey's email. We have not even gotten to half of it yet. So <laughs> um, tap water. Megan, yes. I am so with Megan on this. Tap water <laughs> is far superior to bottled water. I feel like tap water has a better mouthfeel, question mark. And there's like a flavor or a texture that I feel at the back of my throat when I drink bottled water. Mm -hmm. And yes, if I have to drink bottled water, I go for the generic brand, which feels closer to tap water than anything else. This is helpful because I was going to ask you, when I re-listened to the podcast, you used the word mouthfeel. And I was going to ask you, A, what is that? B, um, (laughs) did you make that up? Or is that a thing you've heard before? And C, I really feel that I missed an opportunity to make like a dirty joke. Or uh, that's what you said. Anyway, response to Corey's thoughts on the mouthfeel of tap water. Thank you, Toby. I really, I'm sorry. Thank, oh, wow. <laughs> I think Did I've you called call me Toby or Corey Toby. <laughs> I think I've called you Toby before, and I've now called Corey Toby. There's and something knowing how you on. feel about Toby. That's there's, not great. there's something going on with me and Toby that's more complicated than what I am even able to articulate right now. But Corey, thank you so much for your support for my position on tap water and bottled water. If I can answer this question about mouthfeel, <laughs> I feel like I watched this show that was about people who com- do competitive wine tasting. Like they go through the whole, this process to become one of those wine tasting people. I think they call it a sommelier is, you know, the a person who's like an expert in tasting wine. Yeah, it's yeah. really competitive. There's a lot of stuff you need to know. And Part one of the things they talk about, I feel like this probably comes from wine tasting more than water tasting, but it's like the kind of texture and the feel in your mouth and on your tongue. So like there are some things that feel thicker and some things that feel thinner. That's what she said. (laughs) (laughs) There are things that might feel like there are waters that might feel more slimy and waters that might feel more 
fresh and crisp, but I think it's mostly like a viscosity level or something. <laughs> like the thickness feel. And I don't know, they just, they feel different. It might be partly too, like where it kind of hits on your palate. You know, like there are some things where it hits and you kind of feel it more forward and some things that are more back around the sides because I think there are a lot of things where I'm talking based on speculation and very weak knowledge here. But I think that aren't there on your tongue, like there are different places that taste more bitterness, sourness, sweetness, those things. And so I think different waters then also hit differently. So there's like the thickness, like the kind of texture of the water itself, and then also probably where it hits, like what it activates on the tongue. And so it is different for different waters. Uh, I really want like a chemist to write in and tell us more <laughs> about why this might be. And also, uh, I would love to find out if there's competitive water tasting. That would be an incredible, quick, super quick question as a follow-up. Um, you're at a restaurant and they offer you tap water or sparkling. Is there ever a scenario where you're gonna get the sparkling water? Well, Tyler, this would have been a different question if you said if I was gonna get tap water or bottled water. Right, right. I mean, but I think we've already I know, that. I know the answer to that. So this is another twist and another complication. Yeah, I like, the pod. I like sparkling water. I like sparkling water. As do I, I don't always. I think that's grown on me in, in recent years, but um I yeah, I would consider I consider sparkling water, especially you know, sometimes when they've got it in that kind of bigger bottle and they pour it out into a glass. I like okay. that. I find yeah. that more pleasant than when it's in the can. I drink it in the can at home, but um yeah, so I do I do like sparkling water, and that's where you know, I'm willing, environmentally, I'm willing to waste a can drinking a sparkling water, but I am not willing to open a bottle for a flat, boring bottled water. I love it. What's your, what's your take on sparkling water? I love it. Oh, so very much. And if I could exclusively drink sparkling water, but I definitely for a while thought like, oh, you can't pay for water. You know, that would yeah, be, yeah. you know, I can't order the sparkling. So whenever it occurs, you know, like whenever, like it's, which is not very frequently for me, but whenever sparkling is available, we're like, let's do it. Let's, let's live this fantasy. You yeah. know, um, I, I'm always really delighted by it. And I love me a Perrier. Is that how you say it? I love a, I love those, um, you know, anyway, I love all kinds of seltzer. Yeah. I'm a big fan. Yeah. I think um, it makes me feel, I don't know about you, but as an American, I think it makes me feel very European to drink yes. water when they pour, like not when it's in the can, but if they, if they pour it into a glass, you know, it's like, this is classy. So classy. Okay. So moving forward with Corey's email, <clears throat> next bullet point. Uh, okay. You all listed a bunch of reasons you dislike Jim in this episode. And I want to add one more. I actually despised him during the stick of gum moment. The whole scene didn't strike me as sweet or intimate. It reminded me of douchey boys in high school whose approach to flirting with girls was basically low-key exploitation. These boys had sex appeal and or social capital, and they just sort of assumed that this social capital slash sex appeal meant that girls would want proximity to them, even if that proximity came in the form of loaning the boy a pencil or giving him a stick of gum. 
I think hmm. the technique often works for these kinds of boys. Girls hand over the stick of gum or the sheet of loose leaf paper, not only because that's how girls are socialized, but also because the brutal hierarchy of high school can make, can make kids desperate to be in relationship with popular kids, even if that relationship is fleeting. Anyway, hmm. I think Jim is a 20-something with cool boy syndrome who uses the same flirtation tactics that he grew up using, and it's not cute. It's obnoxious, and I want better for Karen. <laughs> wow. I do like this reading. I, I feel unsure of how to place Jim in terms of cool boyness. Because he feels like he's good at basketball. But was Jim cool in high school? I really don't know. I mean, like, he's got, he definitely has some of that, he's got some of that attitude and some of that swagger, but we've seen his high school yearbook picture. And I think that's maybe the thing for me. And Pam laughs when she sees it and she's like, you were so dorky. And he looks so dorky. Is he one of those people who didn't have that level of prestige and status in high school and is now later kind of getting some of it and then using it? I like that idea of the combination of sex appeal and social capital. I definitely do feel like Jim has got that in this office. And it's making me wonder, yeah, did he... Do we think he had it before and he's just always had it? Or do we think that he's one of these guys who didn't have it in high school and then comes into it a little bit later and then maybe kind of takes advantage of it? That's a good question. I kind of picture him as the like nice popular guy who's friend kind of quote unquote friends with everybody. But, like, not the most popular person, but, like, you know, do you know what I mean? Like, that kind of guy who's, like, you know, yeah, like, kind of can hang with the popular kids, but isn't at the center and then is friends with other people. Because, like, I think of the way Jim is, like, friendly with Kevin, for example, yeah, as yeah. a replaying of that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, the the point about his yearbook picture is interesting because... I don't know. I mean, I feel like we have this kind cultural narrative in which everybody was nerdy in high school or so. You know, if anybody mm -hmm. was out there, your book, the kind of the cringe is like, oh my God, look at how you dressed or whatever. And there's something difficult about reading out of that, like what mm -hmm. were in context. But, but I don't know. I do like yeah. um, Corey's reading though, because I have, as you mm -hmm. know, frequently hated Jim. And so this yes. supports my hatred of him. Also, I love Corey's writing here about the brutal hierarchy of high school and the um yes, the desire to be in proximity to social capital and sex appeal. That's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I do too. It's making me wonder how Jim, like thinking about Jim and Pam and the relationship to Roy and Katie too 
Yeah. Because that takes us back. What, I, what was Corey's line again about the high school, the brutal, brutal hierarchy of high school? Uh, okay. Girls hand over the stick of gum or the sheet of loose leaf paper, not only because that's how girls are socialized, but also because the brutal hierarchy of high school can make kids desperate to be in relationship with popular kids, even if that relationship is fleeting. Mm, yeah. So I'm thinking about the, um, but when they're on the boat, what's the name of that episode again? Boat. When uh, they go on a little hall pack. Boosters. Yeah, boosters. So when they're sitting at the table and Katie says, oh, it's like we're all in high school again and we're at the popular yeah. table. Yeah. And she was a cheerleader and Roy was on the football team and they're kind of bonding over that. And Roy sort of teases Pam about having been an artist with the turtlenecks and Jim is still looking at Pam at that part. And I, yeah, I think I really do love this reading of sex appeal, social capital, the, the gum. I also like that specific, those specific objects of transaction, like the gum and the loose leaf mm. paper. And it's interesting how powerful how powerful that phase of life is and how much it does continue to affect how people are positioned. And I think how we experience ourselves in relationship to other people. I think that's totally true. Sometimes like I'll have a confusing interaction and, uh, you know, my partner will be like, oh, that person was popular in high school. Mm. <laughs> and I'm like, what do you mean? You know, it's like, I just, they just were popular and that explains kind of how they relate to the world, you know, or a certain yeah. they have in the world or whatever. And I don't think that that's like a universal rule or whatever, yeah. but it, but it always surprises me because I never really think in those, I don't approach people and sort of think about the formative <laughs> nature of their high school years or something. Yeah. Um, I suppose I psychoanalyze them in other ways. I'm like, what's your trauma? <laughs> like, what, what, what was your relationship with your mother and father, or, you know, or your parents or whatever? Yeah. Um, so anyway, it's kind of an interesting idea to project backwards. Um, but yeah. you mentioned the gum and the objects, which is a perfect transition to Corey's next point. Um, Let me which, say one more thing. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Let me set aside an hour. To... <laughs> I know we are never going to get to the episode. This is an omnibus episode. <laughs> I, think, I think Corey's making me rethink some of my assumptions about Jim. And one of those was that I think I really took Pam's interpretation of his picture. Maybe I think I might have believed it too much. Mm -hmm. Like her read of him being dorky, I think I took and trusted. Even though Jim, I dislike Jim a lot of times. This episode complicates it. This episode I feel differently. But hmm. I think I I think I kind of really bought into the high school picture being really revealing. Mm. But I think also that you may be right that it could be one of those things where he looks dorky, but the way that we read high school pictures, it sometimes is hard to tell with changes of fashion and all of that kind of stuff. And so maybe she thinks he's dorky and she loves that and that connects her with him and makes her feel more comfortable with him. Mm. But maybe if she actually was at high school with him, she would not have felt comfortable with him. That's interesting. I'm trying to look up Jim's high school photo. Because <laughs> I'm trying to remember, oh, he looks pretty dorky. But it does. it's it, not decisive. This is not okay. decisive. Uh, yeah. Um, 
but I was just going to say, um, I can't remember what I was going to say about that. What was the last point you were just saying? Um, All I'm saying is I am open to oh, yeah. rethinking my my perspective on, on Jim's backstory. I just like your point. It slipped out of my brain for a second. I like your reading that what like Pam wants him to be dorky. I think that yeah. she finds that charming, partly because that he's not like Roy in that way. And then also because uh she she was. And it is interesting in that scene on Booze Cruise when Jim is like, no, no, you weren't, you know, to uh what's her name? Um who's his girlfriend at the time. Um, yes. A cheerleader. And, like he does he's disappointed yeah. to find out she was a cheerleader. Right. And we could read that like a few different ways but he definitely mm -hmm. wants to inhabit that pam's reading whether that is or is not the truth it'll be interesting if we find do we ever meet jim's parents do we you know it's, do we meet his high school friends stuff about them and compared like i'm remembering some of our discussions about michael and the vulnerabilities in michael and when my feelings about roy change like when roy becomes yeah. vulnerable and hurt like what is jim's vulnerability does he have it? I don't know that he does. But really? also, like, I'm. this is partly why I'm not loving Jim's plot. You know, it's like, I know that we're supposed to root for him getting back together with Pam to some degree. Although, you know, I don't know. But there are times when I'm really moved by that plot and other times not. But then the other kind of trajectory for him is basically, I was a slacker and I didn't give a shit at my job. And now I'm going to try. Yeah. And that's just not, I don't know, like... I don't know. So, so something about that because I actually kind of liked his slacker energy <laughs> or something. Uh -huh. But that's a different category, though. Like, you know, the, like you got your nerds and jocks, but the slacker is something else. And I don't know. I don't know that he's really that either. So yeah, we'll have to track this more. Uh, okay. The next bullet point: objects and affects. This comment is probably going to need to be better fleshed out at some later date. Okay, pause. I'm really looking forward to that. And I hope that it is in a follow-up email to us, but nonetheless, back to the email. But your podcast has made me think a lot about actor network theory because you both draw attention to the way objects function as actors in the assemblage of the office. Mm -hmm. Like pretzels can make, or pretzels make certain things happen on pretzel day. Which was, I that was definitely like a big argument. When I released to that episode, I was like, yeah, Megan really is a believer in the, the object of the pretzel. Okay. The vertical <laughs> lines and color of the varnished wood in the Stanford branch do something to us as viewers, even if we can't agree on what they do. <laughs> hmm. In the stick of gum example above, the stick of gum makes certain kinds of relationships possible, and the ritual of asking for a piece of gum instantiates specific relational roles. Again, this needs to be more fleshed out, but I love that your podcast has drawn such clear attention to the role of objects in the text and in the assemblage of viewer text context. Mm. I found that very exciting. And uh, wow. uh, I mean, very uh, exciting. I was like, cool. Yeah, we're doing some. Yeah, we're we're smart. Yeah, I feel like that was a a generous reading it's a very generous reading of us. <laughs> but i will take it and i yeah, will yeah. ask you to reread it to me again later <laughs> <laughs> well i'll just read in the last part and then in case you and if you want to have any other you know comments um before we move on but okay last thought 
Tyler asking to bring, and I quote, more quizzes into the mix is the most Tyler thing ever. You've <laughs> already earned the A, Tyler. You're earning one with each defensive Dwight you offer and every Freudian analysis you make. Take care, Tyler and Megan. Keep up the excellent work. Um, oh. It is definitely true. I can't remember if I've said this on the podcast or not, but I just, you know, occasionally I miss being graded. You know, I want, I want. <laughs> feedback, you know, and a student evaluation at the end of the semester, it's not doing it for me. You know, I, I, I like a lot to be desired. <laughs> it truly does for many reasons. So <laughs> I really do. Well, Tyler, I think, I think Corey is affirming that you have already received the A plus <laughs> plus. I can always do better. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Corey, for that lovely email. The objects thing is really interesting. And maybe one of the ones we'll talk about today is the bandana. Yeah, brilliant. Brilliant. <laughs> what that means. Should... Um, I was gonna say, should we should we uh get into the episode? But I hear you have another another item for us before that. Well, first, can we stroll back over to accounting for a second? Oh, uh, yes. Yeah, because now I have a revision and regret from the last 40 minutes, which is <laughs> specifically when I said you can't be hot and smart. I just to all of our listeners who are both hot and smart, to be clear, you can be both hot and smart. I'm just saying I resent that. OK, so, and I feel that it is like unfair that you are both of those things. But, you know. <laughs> <laughs> to be clear, ontologically, yes, somebody can be hot and smart and fit and rich. I just, I, I just fundamentally believe that that shouldn't exist, but it does, and 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 it exists for some of you. And so I hope I didn't offend our hot and smart listeners. <laughs> uh, I think they can handle it, Tyler. <laughs> yeah, I know they have the world at their feet. I, you know, good point. All right, so let me stroll over to the supply shelf. Because we have another email from Eric, our um, devoted supply shelfer. Um, <laughs> Hi, Megan and Tyler. In an earlier email, I mentioned the clicker version of the V5, uh, or I mentioned uh, that it might be better for Tyler's, quote, pen leakage after conking out issue. Uh, <laughs> and Eric attached the excerpt from the previous email uh, with that. So with the stick version of the V5, he might not be able to locate the cap assuming it's not stowed on the barrel. At least with the clicker version, the expectations for you are not real high. Yeah. <laughs> Eric understands you. <laughs> Eric gets it. Um, <laughs> at least with the clicker version, there's a chance he could quickly retract the point before falling asleep. Short of finding a smart rolling ball pen, which automatically retracts the tip or stops ink flow after so many minutes of inactivity, what else can be done to help Tyler? I'll leave it to the two of you for dissection and discussion. Smiley face, all-inclusive, Eric. <laughs> <laughs> I like the idea of a smart rolling ball pen, which automatically retracts the tip or stops inflow after so many minutes of inactivity. That seems helpful. At the same time, I have to say I bought, uh, a, you know how like you 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 search for jeans and it's really hard to find a pair that you you fucking love and they fit yeah. right you feel confident in i found a pair not too long ago and they're kind of a gray a gray pant and mm -hmm. um, a lightish gray and i love them i'm like want to wear them every day and yesterday i put them on and noticed that there is a small thin blue line of ink on them already 
And I was like, God damn it. What the hell? And I wasn't even asleep. So it was a brushing of the pen must have done it. I don't know. And so uh, truly, perhaps nothing can be done to help me, Eric. I don't know. Tyler. Wow. Well, a couple of things. I do think you should buy several pairs of those pants. I think, you know, when you find something that works and something you love and that you know you're going to get ink on, you just need to make an investment and stock up a little bit. This pen. Can you read me again the question? Hold on. Yeah. I'm going to read I wanted to get I wanted to get the wording right on this. Okay. All right. Here it is. Uh, short of finding a smart rolling ball pen, which retracts the tip or stops ink flow after so many minutes of inactivity, what else can be done to help Tyler? I'll leave it to the two of you for dissection and discussion. Okay. This is a good question. (laughs) I like that idea of a pen that builds in minutes of inactivity. (laughs) It's like, you know, on some websites where it's like, are you still there? Yeah. Yeah. Is it, this is going to sound condescending. Is it, Tyler, that you just need to go back to, what is it called? Is it a, what's, what is this kind of pen? You know, that's like the mo- more basic pen that does like not. A Bic, a Bic, a stick Bic. Just like the really basic Bic pen where it's, it's almost like the ink is more of a cream than a liquid. I've never thought about it in that way before, but do you know what I mean? So I do. Let's take a look. So the precise V5, if you flip once, once you've used enough ink that you can see it, if you flip it up and down, you can see the ink move. It flows like it's really a liquid ink. But in this, I guess this is just a ballpoint pen. Is that what this is? I think so. Again, forgetting the pen categories, but it doesn't move. The ink in there doesn't move. That's why it feels more like a cream ink to me than a liquid. And in this case, I mean, it's not the fault of a pen. I Like, I really appreciate it that Eric is bringing us solutions and the idea of a smart pen that's built for people like you, Tyler. But at some point, we just have to say, you know, adults, you need to be ready to put the cap on your pen before you fall asleep. You don't ever fall asleep while you're reading? I fall asleep while I'm reading all the time. Oh, but you know what? When I'm reading and annotating, I use the cream ink pen. <laughs> <laughs> I use the very basic pen for the annotation. Actually, okay. okay I, yeah. I, so what? this is what I do in the book. Okay, this is, we're, we're opening up a whole. This is shocking to me. That you can annotate in a different pen than your preferred pen? Yes. This is Than the preferred pen. And... Why is this? I think it's because the pow- the V5 is so powerful that it can bleed through a little more. I think I do fall asleep a lot while reading. I think it's that I've adapted to the conditions that I need. I am at risk of falling asleep while reading. It stays the... the uh, Tyler, can you give me a quick look up of what is a ballpoint pen if I'm saying this correctly? I don't um, know. I prefer you saying cream pen. <laughs> Um, what is a ballpoint pen? Okay. Because like precise V5 says it's rolling ball. So we need to really get an under develop an understanding of the of the pen categories here. Hmm. But it never smears. Um 
So I tend to always use the V5 for all grading, but also all of my own writing. Like when I'm working, when I print out my drafts and I'm writing on it and trying to figure things out, then I am always going with the the precise V5. I like the range of colors. I like the thinness. I like the hand feel. I like all of the things that we've discussed. But for the annotation, I use the more basic pen that can be found in most hotel rooms. I do think it is a ballpoint. It is just like a basic ballpoint pen. Okay. It um, is a basic, it is a basic ballpoint pen. Others may write in and, and correct us. We'll see. So for you, Tyler, maybe it's that you need to put certain time parameters on your pen use, mm. you know, so you use the precise B5 when you know that you're awake, you're sitting up, you're at your desk, you're not in a chair. Mm -hmm. You know, you're not in a soft chair where you're at risk of falling asleep. And then when you are at risk, you make a different choice and you bring out your basic BIC pen. Has BIC, because uh, BIC would really benefit from doing a basic BIC campaign because that's just funny <laughs> as hell. Um, but also, you know, this is where we differ. You know, ultimately, I think you're a conservative, you know, because you think it's all about choice, individual choice and responsibility. And for me, it's a structural question, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Why am I falling asleep in the first place is, you know, it's fatigue from overwork. It's a labor issue, you know. So <laughs> to answer your question, Eric, oh, the only solution to my problem is full communism or socialism <laughs> that would relieve me of whatever. <laughs> For the listener who doesn't have access to the video footage, I nearly made Megan spit out her drink in that. <laughs> That delights me. <laughs> uh, good times. All right. Without speech. Are you ready to head to where do we where do we go in the office to actually unpack the office? Have we ever should we go to the conference room? <laughs> I've never thought about that. Maybe. Well, because that's where they screen varsity blues and stuff. So we, we are true. Screening. Yeah, that's true. That's true. That's All right. Where, that's where Pam um, reviews the footage of past Dundies. Precisely. Okay. So we're heading to the conference room for season three, episode nine, The Convict. Um, after discovering an employee was formerly incarcerated, the staff glamorizes prison life over office life. Megan, where do you want to start? Tyler, I want to start from a text you sent me <laughs> before recording. <laughs> it was when you said, I don't even know where to begin with this episode. It's insane. It truly is. Could you elaborate a little bit on that take? <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, I, I get, it's just so, it's so wacky and batshit from the beginning of you know, the, the opening with Michael, <laughs> like wanting to hold the baby supposedly, and then going under the desk to do a version of look who's talking, um, to Jim, like pranking Pam with Andy and Andy being full on insane, um, to, yeah, like the entire, um, plot in which Michael, ends up locking everybody in the office and then the biggest twist of all is that he listens to toby i was just like this is zany as hell and it is 
yeah like and and I was also like I don't even know how how to unpack the office life versus prison life parallels that are being drawn like there's so much to yeah. say so yeah. I guess I was just overwhelmed by content you know mm-hmm. um but I have to say just at the top I think this is peak office I think it is funny I mm-hmm. think it is uh it it calls back to some of the stuff that we've really talked about a lot like the diversity day episode mm-hmm. which I feel like we got to do a rewatch of that someday because you've always gone to back to it as like a foundational character moment and mm-hmm. this episode has me convinced that it truly is uh because it's the only thing that really explains Michael's about face in which he is essentially in this episode kind of like a like a well-intentioned like liberal who who you know is like more racist for trying to not be racist or something like that um anyway so is mr brown the most influential character in this show holy shit that would be amazing would be amazing so yeah i guess that's what i meant was i was just like this is crazy and there's too much to talk about and that was before i knew we were going to spend an hour talking about (laughs) the incredible emails we received yeah yeah, this one, this I think this one is going to take us some time. But do you like this? Because sometimes you don't love Zany. Yeah, yeah. I I think I have mixed feelings about this episode. I don't love Prison Mike. What? <laughs> I what? Mean, <laughs> Prison Mike is, is a lot to take. But I do like this episode and find it fascinating. And... But this you didn't one, say funny. You don't find it funny. Oh no, I do. I do find it funny. Okay, okay I do find okay. it funny. I just think <laughs> I don't know. Prison Mike is a little painful. Like, like cringy or um, maybe racist? I don't know. What, do you... what is it about Prison Mike? I did, earlier in the episode when I said that you're a contrarian and an iconoclast. This mm-hmm. is what I mean because. <laughs> You know, you're the fan of The Office, so I'm expecting, like, oh, you're a fan of this iconic moment or whatever. And it turns out, like, I'm the basic Office viewer who's like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> said Mike. Whereas you, you're you, you're an aesthete, you know? You, <laughs> you want, you don't come at it with the most mainstream take. <laughs> uh, watching this on a high level of sophistication. Yeah. <laughs> This just reinforces like all the ways in which I am the mediocre (laughs) and like you're the elite runner and you're the elite uh, office viewer. Okay. I do like to think of myself that way as the elite runner. (laughs) I'm really holding, holding the lines, trying to include myself and leave Toby out. And I'm like, if Toby's in and I am out, I cannot live. All right. Well, maybe we could start with the opening bit because I am going to make a uh, a, a hot take, a, a, a provocative claim. I'm going to argue that this opening scene is not just a funny little bit. I am going to argue that it is thematically crucial. <gasps> I love this. Go on. The, the opening. OK, so for those who don't remember, Hannah is one of the Stanford employees who has a baby who is um in 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 Scranton now and uh 
you know, Pam is like, oh my God, you know, let me see the baby. And um, she says, she's absolutely adorable. Hannah corrects, he. Pam says, oh, sorry, he, he's dressed in all in pink. That's his favorite color. Oh, that's fun for him. Stanley says, fantastic, you know, annoyed at the presence of a baby or whatever. So let's just pause that. Well, and then to round out the scene, Michael says, may I, thinking, you know, we think he's going to hold the baby, but instead he goes under the desk and begins to impersonate and ventriloquize the baby, saying, hey, look at me. I'm a baby. I'm one of those babies from Look Who's Talking. What am I thinking? Look at all those staplers. What's a stapler? I don't even know. I'm a baby. See, here's the two points I want to make. Number one, prison Mike is all about ventriloquism, and it is all about impersonation. And um, so I do feel like there's a way to read this scene as kind of setting up Michael's um, performative enactment of another voice. And, um, And that part of the joke is that, like, he would, rather than, like, hold the baby and sort of get whatever kind of, I don't, I don't even know what, what is the pleasure of that? I'm not sure. <laughs> like, That's actually really interesting to think about. I yeah. Need to, yeah, I need you to explain that or have somebody write in and explain it to us. But like, as far as I understand, I mean, I've heard people sort of be like, oh, I just love babies. So holding yeah. a baby, there's a there's an end game in and of itself. And then I've also yeah. seen people sort of it take on the kind of, pleasure of like oh the baby likes me or it 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 responds to me it doesn't cry and that that is a kind of pleasurable specialness or something yeah Um, but michael forsakes that for essentially being the baby (laughs) inhabiting the position of the baby um which of course is like you know arise moves into um problematic territory here with the uh fetishism of the breasts and the milk and the whatnot you know but like what's interesting here is that he's also performing like so he says look at all those staplers what's a stapler (laughs) i don't even know so he can't quite do the impersonation right and anyways this sets up i think the prison mike thing in which he's trying to have the position of the prisoner and like but keeps saying things and then has to sort of be like but i don't even know i wouldn't you know anyway yeah, um, yeah. Like you, you both cannot imagine yourself into the position of a baby, and he cannot imagine himself into the position of a prisoner. Right. Even as he's trying to do so, and then Brilliant. backing up, Pam mistaking the gender of the baby. Yeah. This I think is also setting up the question around race that is played out through the episode. So because Michael is trying to push on Kevin and. Uh, or Kevin in particular, his assumption that Martin would be the convict. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, like kind of later when Michael is playing to the camera and being like, okay, picture somebody, you know, or <laughs> picture or whatever. I think, I think he does gender it. And then it's like, oh, but actually it's a woman or whatever. Yes. I felt that this was one of the best cold opens because it could be read as sort of setting up the themes of the narrative even as it is also just sort of amusing on its own terms yeah you know it also does definitely like i don't know that we would play the gender joke in the same way although i don't maybe i don't know i don't have a take very much on pam's mistaking it Mm -hmm. a boy girl thing i don't know if you had thoughts on that anyway those are my thoughts on the opening wow that is a really good reading i love it 
the so I really am interested in that connection, the idea of the ventriloquism of Prison Mike and of the baby and the relationship between mistaking gender and thinking about race and that categorization. Um, so I will say in this part, let me get the um, quote. So you said, okay, so yeah, Pam walks up. She says, oh, about the baby. She's absolutely adorable. Hannah, he, Pam, oh, sorry. He's, he's dressed all in pink. Hannah, that's his favorite color. Pam, oh, that's fun for him. And then Stanley says, fantastic. So I do think, uh, I think Hannah is being so annoying here. <laughs> <laughs> so on the one hand, yes, pink, we know, right? Pink is arbitrary as a color for girls. But at the same time, Hannah also knows the way that it signals in a system of communication about boys and girls. And I feel like the answer is, oh, yeah, I just like pink. Hannah likes pink. Her kid does not have a favorite color. The kid is not yet functional at that level where he is choosing his outfits. So it's fine that she just thinks he looks good in pink. But pink is not his favorite color. He does not understand colors. <laughs> Am I off on infant? No, I completely here? agree. I completely agree. I do think, I don't know. I There is this part of me that is like, is the, who is the, who are the writers making fun of in that moment? Mm -hmm. um, but I do agree with you that like, yeah, like she knows what she's doing. Like first, yeah, it's 100% her favorite color. And then secondly, the kind of indignation that you yeah. would, you know, the, get it wrong is, yeah, like you're you're setting yourself up there, I guess. But <laughs> at the same time, there's this part of me that feels like the joke is on the, I don't know. I don't know. Is it really? I'm not sure. I'm trying to think about whether or not like they're making fun of the gender nonconformity of it all. You know what I mean? And I don't think so, but something about it. Yeah. I think we'll because I know this episode is written by Ricky Gervais and we never bring oh. in external knowledge. And I'm a little skeptical of Ricky Gervais's like politics. So I think that I'm like reading into that, but that's neither here nor oh, there. Oh, interesting. I know nothing about Ricky Gervais outside of this, basically. And another show. We'll leave him, we'll leave him for now, but leave him aside. Okay. But Hannah does seem, I mean, I don't know. Hannah, Hannah's a character that doesn't really exist. Like we don't really know much about her. Right. Like, and I did feel kind of bad for her. Like she's nursing in the last episode and, but there's nowhere really for her to go to nurse. Right. Like, I don't know, but you're not a sympath. You're not sympathetic to her because you hate women or. I definitely hate this woman. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> She's so unlikable. It's sort of one of those things where you can kind of take this stand like, oh, you know, well, like I'm not going to raise my baby in that way where pink is just for girls and still manage to just be an asshole about it. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I agree <laughs> with that. I do agree with that. <laughs> Because I do, it's you still know, imposing I, on him. It's still like acting. It just, it's still acting like this thing is his choice when it's not his choice at all. And just like when you're the adult and your parent, the parent, you make some choices and you can choose pink or blue or yellow or whatever. 
Um, but it's not, it's, it's not that kid's favorite color. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's so interesting that that's the part that bothers you. I'm, I think I'm even more irked by the like indig as if Pam should know, like yeah, yeah, your baby right. or whatever. I feel that way. Like in general, when people are kind of like, well, obviously is this, and it's like, okay, yeah, yeah. Why definitely. should I, you know, and if I made an incorrect assumption, it is not like inherently because I'm a bad person or something. It's because, yes. you know, whatever the social signals, I guess. But yeah. Um, yeah. Did you have thoughts on Michael's uh, uh, look, look who's talking moment? <laughs> it's so gross. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it is. And recalls Creed like taking creep shots, right? Of Yeah. Yeah, it does. Breasts. Um, it does. This will come up later when Ham is breastfeeding and Kevin makes a big deal out of it. There's a lot of a lot of interest in in breastfeeding among the men in the office. Is that in this episode? Or no, this that's no, no, it's much later. Yeah, yeah, okay, it's it's, okay. uh, it's a little look ahead, way down, way down the road. Um, um, then we find out that Jim and Karen are dating, but they're not open about it yet. Mm -hmm. And I was curious if you had thoughts on that or if you cared. <laughs> So they're standing at the copier. Karen walks up. She says, hey. Jim says, hey. Karen asks, almost done. Jim says, just about. Yep. Now. And then it goes into an interview and Jim is explaining the situation. He says, yes, I've started to see Karen. It's very new and not really ready to talk about it openly yet. Just because I think once the word gets out, there might there it might affect the way people behave around us. I don't know. Just not yet. And as I watched that part, I thought about how the editing affects the way that we interpret the things that they're saying. Because then it goes and it looks at Pam and the way that Pam is watching them as they are at the copy machine. And you can just see in her face that she's having some feelings. You know, she's noticing. As you look at the script, it's interesting because the words are just, hey, hey, almost done. Yep. Like there's so little there verbally but pam is watching it and noticing and feeling it so it just i was interested in seeing the way that they put together the speech and the recording and what people are saying with the way that they film it during those interviews because sometimes they're just looking at the person but then sometimes they're showing other things and in looking at the way pam is looking it it has by including that shot basically it has really connected pam to what he's saying about the way that people will react have you ever, you don't have to answer this if you don't want to, but I'm curious if you've ever dated somebody that didn't want people to know you were dating or no. not know that you were dating yet. Mm -mm. I might I, have too limited experience. <laughs> what'd you say? I might have too limited experience. <laughs> no, this is, it's like a good thing to not have that experience. Yeah. But I have definitely, I've had at least two, I guess, relationships where you know, I had a gym situation where one person was kind of like, I don't want people to know yet. And then another person was like, I don't want certain people to know indefinitely mm -hmm. or whatever. And yeah. I, you know, that was a huge miss. That was like a big red flag. <laughs> you know, like if somebody wants to compartmentalize their relationships in that way, there's something up, you know, and 
so I really was like not happy about this with Jim. And it's yeah. so clear that what he's saying is basically, I don't want Pam to know we're together yet. Mm -hmm. But the question is sort of like, well, but wait, Pam does know, right? Like, doesn't she? Yeah, he told her she's, he's seeing someone actually, because he hasn't, he has not told other people in the office, but he has told Pam. Has he told Pam that it's Karen? He hasn't. He has not. I think she's just putting it together probably. So it's even worse, I think, yeah. in a way. Like, I don't know. Like, just be open and say like, hey, look, I'm dating Karen. It's great to be back. I hope we can be friends. Here's yeah. how Here's how I want to be friends. Or say, you know, I'm ambivalent about being back because I was, whatever. I realized that like being open doesn't make for a good story. So I get it. Uh -huh. But I just, I just really, I didn't love the way that he, he acts here. And it's like, I guess we should really psychoanalyze it or whatever. But he wants to sort of stay in the closet, as it were, with the office. Um, mm -hmm. So they don't know about him and Karen. And then meanwhile, he wants to amp up Andy to mess with Pam. Mm -hmm. And it is seems like this weird, like, um, kindergarten, you know, like, they, they, we have these narratives, these, like, messed up narratives about, like, young kids and it's like oh you know the boy likes a girl because he's like being mean to her or whatever yeah. or her. i don't know you've heard this kind of yeah, yeah. thing right it's like super sexist or whatever and it feels like an instance of that or whatever like he's he's being he's pranking her with some sadism as a way to either like be close to her in some deferred way or I don't know if it's like he's getting back at her subconsciously for rejecting him. And so he wants her to, I, I don't know. Like, I can't figure out what the psychology is there. And he's checked when Karen is like, ooh, let me get in on this. Like, yes. Um, yeah. What did you yeah, make of it? Then he withholds it and he says, oh, you know what? Maybe I've, I've done enough to Pam. Let's, let's pick somebody else out. It reminded me of talking about the, intimacy of pranking and like the connection that mm. it builds between the two who are involved in it kind of against the person who is being pranked mm -hmm. and how much the closeness seemed to build and that charge kind of builds in this episode between Jim and Pam because he's doing this to her and when she recognizes that it's him and she takes pleasure in it in yes. knowing yes. that it's Jim messing with her I Which can't is, remember. It's their that. love language, right? It's like it is being fucked with or fucking with. So yes. Why it would is. it be bad if Karen was involved? If she had gotten involved in the prank, why would that be bad? Because it's too special. It's about the two of them. Mm. So like Karen can mess with him with other other people, but not with Pam, because that's a different like that's a separate category and that's about the two of them and so i think it would interfere i love your point about the recalling that idea of the intimacy of pranking because that helps explain kind of like what's going on here and it does make me just wonder how aware jim is of his ambivalence yeah it's really striking that karen is into pranks like yeah must be part of what attracts him to her or yeah her to him. Yeah. yeah but not enough not enough to get his interests away i think he's crazy i i, I don't know not go all just all in on karen what'd you say not just go all in on karen yeah 
I don't, whatever. I get it. You know, I get it. We're supposed to have yeah. a will they won't they or whatever, but like point to one bad thing about Karen. Like, yeah, Karen's great. She's great. And she's, she knows what she wants and she's being clear with him. I don't know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I feel, like, feel like Karen gets the, gets the short end of this stick. What did you make of Andy? <laughs> Andy is so much to handle in this episode so I guess it kind of the place it kind of starts with Andy is he calls Jim so he's sitting at his desk and he calls Jim and on the phone he says I am so horny and Jim says okay I can't really help you with that Andy oh I think you can big tuna Tell me about that Indian chick, Kelly. She seems pretty slutty. Good for a good romp in the sack. Uh, Andy is sitting in the accounting corner. He's right next to Angela. He's talking a little bit quietly, but not that quietly. I kind of wanted to ask you about this and see what you thought about the way that Andy brings sex into the office and what it reveals about sexual dynamics in workplaces more generally if that mm. makes sense Oof. i mean well I he, go ahead sorry i'll say too he just has a he has a way of being very explicit about it yeah and saying that he's horny and who he thinks is slutty and all of that but i don't know i also like i'm not sure that the dynamic that he's introducing is necessarily all that different than other things that are already there. And I don't know, with, with Kelly and Ryan and Pam and Jim and Meredith, like there's lots of sexual dynamics in an office. And there's just, there's just something about the way that he kind of brings that discussion in a little more explicitly. Yeah. Yeah. I, I guess, I mean, on the one hand, I thought, Ew, Andy is a creep, and I really don't yeah. like this character. And I don't know if I'm ever going to love this character. I don't know. Um, like, we're going to have to think about it um, or talk, you know, keep an open conversation about Andy. But this, I was like, oh, he's a real gross D-bag. And um, this felt to me at his most kind of frat boyish. Although I have been starting to wonder whether I am misremembering. Was he in a fraternity, or am I just thinking of him as a frat guy? I think you... I, I don't know for sure about the fraternity, but his big thing was the acapella group, which was basically his fraternity, like basically functions in that way. Here Comes Trouble. Have we learned about Here Comes Trouble? Maybe we haven't. I don't know. Oh, damn. I got to. We okay. might only know that he's gone to Cornell. Okay. I, I have that information. I have um, that information. <laughs> I'm like quickly Googling Andy Bernard uh, fraternity. <laughs> Uh, that's, the group that's, a, that's the group that he always talks about work because has he mentioned broccoli rob yet i don't know if he has <laughs> you know, he's got his friends he's got his guys but they're from the acapella group um but nonetheless we yeah i just i i read him as as that kind of like guy that kind of and and you know maybe it's unfair of me to generalize about fraternities or whatever but a certain kind of straight um, dude bro who like 
especially in Andy's case where he's kind of more effete and like upper class, mm-hmm. he seems to be trying to intensify his masculinity by, you know, talking about sex in a way that it does not seem that he actually has sex at all <laughs> or, you know, has, you know, when he says, um, Blondes are more fun. Come on, trust me on that. I really am not sure whether we can trust <laughs> Andy. Um, but, he, you know, so the bravado, I guess, is the first thing I thought. And the second thing yeah. I thought was like, um, it is kind of an interesting, you know, I, I, I totally agree with you about, you know, connecting it to the sexual dynamics of the workplace. And I I do think that, you know, workplaces are, you know, complicated <laughs> and mm-hmm. filled with, you know, potential romances, attractions, eroticisms for better and for worse, you know, sometimes very problematically. We've talked a lot about the power dynamics here. Um, But at the same time, shows about workplaces kind of rely on these sexual and romantic um, possibilities. Like you sort of need them for the story. And so it's interesting in, on the one hand, like here's this guy who comes in and is like, all right, who am I going to sleep with or whatever? Um, but that is also a kind of question of like, where will this plot take us? You know, like what, Mm -hmm. you know, like, do we want to see Andy in a will they, won't they? I don't think so. Um, do we, yeah, I don't know. Basically like, where does he, how does his presence fit into or disrupt the existing economies of relationships in the office? So there was this part of me was like, is he going to hook up with Meredith? You know, or something like that. Who's nowhere to be seen in this episode, as far Mm -hmm. as I can tell. Um, So I guess those were the things I thought about it. But but Jim then says, I know Pam pretty well. I know the things she likes, just as important. I know the things she hates. One of those things she likes is pranks and the things that she hates, dot, dot, dot. Um, And then we get a number of things that she hates and Andy attempting to seduce her. Did you have thoughts on that? I enjoyed this. Me too. I, yeah. So, so Jim, then I, I really like the way it cuts from the interview with Jim. I know the things she likes and the things she hates and it goes dot, dot, dot. And then rather than him explaining the things she hates to the camera, he's telling things to Andy that he should do in order to seduce Pam. And I really liked this. I thought this was very funny. I think it does show how much, like the level of interaction that he's had with Pam and the things that he knows about Pam. And I'm feeling a little bit bad that I like this. Like I probably shouldn't, but I do. Well, I think it's one of the funniest bits is when Andy goes over and says, I I think this is so fucking funny. And the way that the actor delivers it is so spot on. And I have to say like, I, oh God, I'm going to get in trouble for this. Like, there's a part of me that was like a little like, Andy maybe could ask me out. I don't know. Like, <laughs> I don't know. He's so confident in the way that he says it. So like, <laughs> Lama ding dong. Listen, you're cute. There's no getting around it. I love that line. <laughs> I loved that line. I was like, that's fucking hot. I like yeah. that. There's no getting around it. So yeah. I don't know if you like country music, but I was thinking maybe one of these days we could drive out to a field, crank up some tunes, smoke a few Macanudos, maybe even toss a disc around. Utwe, ude, uye, ink, 
ink they ampe? <laughs> she says, well, he says, think about it. I'll hit you back. I think that is one of the funniest fucking things in the whole show. Um, I got to admit. Um, and I had to look up Macanudos. Did you know what Macanudos are? No. Okay, so Macanudo is a brand of cigar produced by the General Cigar Company in the, in the Dominican Republic. It's noted for its mild flavor and light cafe uh, or Claro Connecticut shade wrapper, but is also available in a darker Maduro 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 wrapper. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, anyway, it's a cigar. Um, <laughs> Funny thing to smoke cigars. <laughs> Yeah, I think this is hilarious. I think a really good move, actually, if you are asking somebody out in this kind of scenario, is his final line. Think about it. I know people are really offended by being shushed, but think about it. I'll hit you back. I think just like giving them that space to think about it a little bit and then circling back. I think that was a good move and good for upping his chances. I don't know if it's actually ups his chances or decreases them because it gives more time to think about it, but I, I did find it find it smart. <laughs> now, did you know what the pig Latin means? It's when you take that final syllable of words, right? And then you put it at the beginning. Right. Something like that. I, did you know, but did you know what Andy's like? So like Ampe is Pam. Right. Um think Utway. You got Uday. it. I had to Google it. You're so much smarter. Wait a second. This is hard. Okay, so then the last one is Pam. You always add an what do you what do you think, Pam? Yes. What do you think, Pam? <laughs> right. Hell yes. Um. <laughs> I, I I had to go. I was like, what does this mean in pig Latin? Um, okay. Now at the risk of making the episode, our episode longer, um, mm -hmm. I don't care. This is going to be a longer episode because yeah, buckle up, people. <laughs> um, because it's worth it for me. So I was Googling around like the pig Latin, the Macanudos, and I was Googling basically like what are Macanudos, but like what, how would Jim know that Pam doesn't like them or something like that. Oh, right? yeah. And what I stumbled upon was a website called fanfiction.net. And there is a writer, a fan fiction writer named Mel Like Mello, who on December 4th, 2010, published a short, uh, a very short fan fiction that tries to answer this question. So, oh, in, wow, in, Tyler. Yeah. Dive. And I have to read it to you because okay. I was like, oh my God. So they were saying, I've rewatched some season three to get back in the uh, in the show's groove. And I was struck by Jim's comment about Pam's dislikes. Um, so I decided to investigate all of Pam's alleged hates as Jim finds them out hmm. in a like hypothetical fan fiction scene. Yeah. And I have your permission to read it to you. Yes, absolutely. You do. All right. Well, the name of the... Uh, fan fiction piece is that pig latin thing and so here we go oh and did they say it takes place uh i can't i'm not sure where if it says when oh uh i'm not sure it doesn't say exactly when it's set but here we go 
His spidey senses are tingling when he hears the snap of the sliding door above the dinner conversation. As soon as I hear the word tingling in fanfic, I'm like, (laughs) wait a minute, you read fanfic? No, but I I just know the concept. (laughs) Okay, so I actually think, I think this must take place at that episode where Jim hosts the party, maybe? Um, Oh, okay. Oh, wait, no. Sorry. Okay, no. I got distracted. By, I got distracted. Keep, okay. No, please interrupt. Be, okay. so he hears the snap of the sliding door above the din of conversation. And when he looks over, he can't help but smile. Of course, it falls just as soon as he gets a look at the sneer on Pam's face. Tipping his beer toward the group of coworkers in farewell, he disengages and maneuvers his way across Oscar's foyer and into the kitchen, intending to meet Pam halfway. She looks almost relieved when she nearly bumps into him, though she can't seem to shake the wrinkles between her brows. Oh, hey, I was just coming to find you. Something that is becoming increasingly familiar warms inside his stomach. Ew. What? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, whatever. Look, I don't mean to make fun of Mel's story, but anyway, Jim cocks a grin at her. Really? But there are so many other. He trails off, sniffs the air, and arches a brow down at her. Pamela Beasley, have you been smoking? He knows she hasn't. He knows she's only ever touched a single cigarette in her life when her best friend Isabel peer pressured her in eighth grade. (laughs) He knows she absolutely hated it, never went near it again, and that she still gets nauseous whenever she smells a fresh cigarette. It was the first 15-minute morning break talk over coffee they ever really had that was more than just about the weather or whatever was happening in the local news. It seems so long ago now. Pam sighs heavily and shrugs off her coat with a grimace. No, she flattens and shakes out her messy curls. It's Roy. He bums some cigars from one of the other warehouse guys. It's so gross. I had to get away from him. (laughs) Jim feels like... Jim shouldn't feel like there's a check in the wind column of life. So he doesn't, tries not to anyway, acknowledge it. Oh, I didn't know he smoked. He doesn't usually, she rolls her eyes, unless he's hit his five beer limit. (laughs) Then he goes back to his high school antics. He clucks his tongue. Then I guess from your tone that you're not a fan? Well, Pam breathes heavily again and looks out toward the backyard. Jim follows her gaze, spots Roy's and Roy and bites his tongue. I mean, my dad smoked cigars sometimes, and those were okay, but they were like the super fancy kind, you know? The urge to chuck, I'm like suddenly in the Oedipal plot here with the uh, Pam's dad smoked cigars, and that was okay. Anyway, the urge to chuckle at her adorableness is overwhelming. Jim smiles down at her. But the Macanudos down at Walgreens just don't cut it. You're you're starting to sound a little high maintenance, Beasley. (laughs) Pam smirks in an aside to him and runs her fingers through a tangle. He admires the crinkle of her nose as her ring catches at a mass of curls. I feel like they're really focusing on Pam's curly hair, which is anyway. Seriously, though, it's a disgusting habit. I wish he'd just quit altogether. Well, some habits are hard to break. Yeah, well... He just better not crawl into bed tonight reeking of smoke because I'm not going anywhere near his ashtray mouth. His stomach plummets at the notion of Pam's mouth being near Roy's, as is typical whenever he re-enters reality and 
and remembers she's engaged and not at all available to him and his wayward daydreaming. But the disgusted tone of her voice soothes the uneasy rumble, as does her smile and the tilt of her head to the home bar as she beckons him for more drinks. The end. Wow. So that is a whole story to explain the Macanudo inversion. Yeah. I just felt that that was important to share with you. And Good important, research, Tyler. Um, although now I'm questioning whether that was the right decision or not. But uh, this is possibly the last time we'll ever dive into office fan fiction, which is a thing I did not know existed until today. I didn't know it existed either. Tyler, do you find the story persuasive? I find it like, uh, well, first, I just find, I find fan fiction, fiction fascinating insofar as people want to jump genres. Like, like you're, it's asking us to like move mm. the psychological realism of Jim's like, you know, painful desire. But that's also kind of what we're doing when we're like close reading. Mm. Um, but as an account of uh, Pam's like hatred of cigar smoke, I guess, I guess it's a, persuasive account of how it would happen but it's just much funnier to me to never have it explained yeah yeah <laughs> some things just don't need explanation <laughs> so we've circled around it um you know i feel like we've done justice to all the other aspects of this story there's really only one crucial thing for us to talk about which is the crux of the whole plot <laughs> the context yes. Everything about the convict. Shall we start from the beginning of this? I think we shall. So this is after the opening. There's a meeting in the conference room to figure out where a check came from. So Dunder Mifflin has received this check and they don't know what it is. And let me just read it into the record. Okay. So starting from Michael. I didn't hire... Oh, so basically like there, so it's Michael and, um, Michael and Kevin and Angela and Pam are all in the conference room having this meeting and they're trying to figure out where this check came from and they're on the phone with Jan. So Michael says, yeah, Jan, it, um, looks like a check, piece of paper of some sort, receipt, I don't know. Michael gives the most useless information. <laughs> So Angela jumps in. Jan, this is Angela Martin from accounting. Jan, mm-hmm. Angela, look, we have a rebate from the Federal Work Opportunity Program, and no one knows what that means. Jan, we get that money for hiring an ex-convict. Michael, I didn't hire an ex-convict, unless they mean Toby, convicted rapist. Jesus Christ. Jan sighs, I'm just kidding. Uh, Jan, when did he come? When did the check come? Angela, last week. Jan, okay. That's when the branches merged, so Josh must have been taking advantage of this program. Smart move. Angela, one of the Stanford people is a criminal? Michael, hey, Jan, speaking of Stanford, Hannah brought her baby. Angela, Jan, which of the new employees is a criminal? Jan, a reformed convict, and uh, I'm not sure, though. Hang on. Let me email our HR. Stay on the line. Pam, who is it? So then they start to debate who it is, and Michael first proposes Hannah? Kevin says, hmm. Angela says, hmm. Then Kevin says, Andy. Angela, Andy. Then Kevin asks Martin. And mm. this is where Michael says, oh, you're such a racist. Kevin, wait, why am I a racist? Michael, because you think he's black. Kevin, he is black, right? And Michael, stop it. Stop it right, stop it right now. 
And then Jan comes on. Okay, it's someone named Martin Nash. Okay. <laughs> um, initial thoughts about the receipt of this check. Um, well, I just, even in your, your reading of it, which is so great, you know, it's just like, Michael is really bad at, it's not that he's bad at his job. He just doesn't care. You know, he's more excited about the baby. Yeah. Yeah. It's Angela. Who's like, we got to figure this out or whatever. Um, and, uh, I just find that part hilarious. Um, yeah. and, uh, then, oh, also, you know, I, yet again, I'm always sort of impressed by Jan's professionalism and, mm -hmm. Something I thought was remarkable here is that Jan says reformed convict. And yeah. she's like, you know, what does she say? You know, good, good, good move, smart move, right? Um, and of course, like she's saying smart move because it saves the company money mm -hmm. that they're paying uh the employee. At the same time, like there's no shame, there's no stigma. And I find that like very refreshing. You know, mm -hmm. I kept thinking about how this episode in 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 part is also kind of about like the lack like martin doesn't actually have a lot of shame any shame mm -hmm. about his past and it feels like jan kind of sets up that potential that like you could as viewers sort of see this person as yeah a reform yeah. Project, not a not the way that angela will see him um yeah yeah so i don't know those are my initial thoughts what about you it what was I trying to think of? Um, oh yeah, it, it was taking me back to your discussion last time of the title and the way things are titled and they're often the something. Mm, yeah. This one being the convict and like the category of the convict or the criminal and how just that, like either of those terms, all of the, how, how much I guess the episode is thinking about all of the baggage that comes with those things and how the category of the criminal or the category of the convict comes to kind of replace the person and any specificity of the person. But I think you're so right that Jan there is treating it just as kind of a technicality and yeah. right, not something where it makes a fundamental change in terms of who this person is. Mm -hmm. And I think Michael's reaction to this is fascinating and because I felt like there were ways with this that Michael is really on and he's also really off um but I I do think he I do think he learned things from Mr. Brown <laughs> but so so Michael's reaction then when it goes into the interview he says why did the convict have to be a black guy it's such a stereotype I just wish that Josh had made a more progressive choice <laughs> A white guy who went to prison for polluting a black guy's lake. <laughs> First Which, of all, his, yeah, his imagined. Oh God, I feel like there's so many things about this. But okay. first of all, just his imagination of a crime that would challenge this sort of standard representation of black criminality. I love the idea of a white guy who pollutes a black guy's leg. <laughs> so specific and so strange. But it also connects in some ways to presentations he's done before 
and Michael's theory of representation. So in the Diwali episode, his perspective is we need to show Indian Americans who have done good things. When he has his day about disabilities, he's like, we need to show people with disabilities who have done impressive things. And so I think it's getting at this complicated problem of representation and stereotypes, and it taps into things that are really serious debates among Black intellectuals and Black writers. How do you tell the story of a Black person in America when there are so many stories already built up in American culture about Black criminality? And it reminded me of this essay by Richard Wright that he writes. So so Richard Wright writes this novel called Native Son about a Black character who ends up in prison and on death row and who is a convict and who has done a lot of things. I'll try not to spoil the story, but he writes this. I want to read this um, section from his essay because he writes about this problem and the issue of representation. And this is to say that I think like there's a real concern that Michael's got. And I feel like there are sort of two layers of it because it's for him in the office and the issue of the black guy being a convict and he's raising questions about like, what are people then going to assume about that stereotype? But there's also the show representing the characters and having the black character be a convict. And it just made me think of this passage. So I wanted to read it because I thought it was kind of powerful and relevant. So let me read a little bit. This is from Richard Wright, How Bigger Was Born. And Bigger is the name of this character that he wrote. And he talks about the things that made it difficult for him to write this character, like the ways that he hesitated. So I'm quoting here. But several things militated against my starting to work. Like Bigger himself, I felt a mental censor a product of the fears which a Negro feels from living in America, standing over me, draped in white, warning me not to write. The censor's warnings were translated into my own thought process thus. What will white people think if I draw such a picture, if I draw a picture of such a Negro boy? Will they not at once say, see, didn't we tell you all along that N-words are like that? Now, look, one of their own kind has come along and drawn the picture for us. I felt that if I drew the picture of Bigger truthfully, there would be many reactionary whites who would try to make of him something I did not intend. And yet, this was what it made, uh, sorry, and yet, and this was what it made it difficult. I knew I could not write of Bigger convincingly if I did not depict him as he was. That is, resentful toward whites, sullen, angry, ignorant, emotionally unstable, depressed, and unaccountably elated at times, and unable even because of his own lack of inner organization which American oppression has fostered in him to unite the members of his own race. And would not whites misread bigger and doubting his authenticity say, this man is preaching hate against the whole white race? The more I thought of it, the more I became convinced that if I did not write bigger as I saw and felt him, if I did not try to make him a living personality and at the same time a symbol of all the larger things I felt and saw in him, I'd be reacting as bigger himself reacted. That is, I'd be reacting out of fear if I let what I thought whites would say constrict and paralyze me. Um, As I contemplated bigger and what he meant, I said to myself, I must write this novel, not only for for others to read, but to free myself 
of the sense of shame and fear. And he goes on to also write about his concerns about how Black readers would respond. So he says, I asked myself, what will Negro doctors, lawyers, dentists, bankers, school teachers, social workers, and businessmen think if I draw such a picture of bigger? I knew from long and painful experience that the Negro middle and professional classes were, uh, were the people of my own race who were more than others ashamed of bigger and what he meant, having narrowly escaped the bigger Thomas reaction pattern themselves, indeed still retaining traces of it within the confines of their own timid personalities, they would not relish being publicly reminded of the lowly shameful depth of life above which they enjoy their bourgeois lives. Never did they want people, especially white people, to think that their lives were so touched by anything so dark and brutal as bigger. Their attitude toward life and art can be summed up in a single paragraph. But Mr. Wright, there are so many of us who are not like bigger, why don't you portray fiction? Why don't you portray in your fiction the best traits of our race? Something that will show white people what we have done in spite of our oppression, save our pride. So I was thinking about this and the, the dilemma that he reflects on of representing a black character as a criminal or as a convict and the issue then of representation. And he did get criticism for representing someone who fulfilled stereotypes that were already available from many, many white people. But part of what struck me is the kind of dilemma of it and the unfreedom that there is in also not being able to represent that, like in needing to only represent or produce good, positive images of Black characters. And this kind of declaration of freedom, I mean, like, if I am actually free, I need to be able to also write about a Black character who is bad, basically. Mm -hmm. And um, that's not to say that Martin is bad, because Martin really isn't, and Martin is really very different than this character. But just in terms of that dilemma of how do you represent and how do you talk about something when there is all of this weight of stereotype about Black criminality behind it, I felt like Michael was opening up. And of course, it's in his clunky Michael way that ends up leading ends up outing Martin and leading him to quit and leave the job. And yet at the same time, I did feel like he was opening up something that's really very real. Uh, two things, I guess I want to say about it. The first is this is a great example of what you bring to the podcast versus what I bring to the podcast. I bring like fan fiction about <laughs> Macanudos <laughs> and you bring like, you know, the long and important tradition of, African-American <laughs> literature and and the both are important contributions to black representation. Yeah. Who can say which is more or less important, you know? Uh, so the, and the second thing about that is, um, no, I completely agree. I think that the episode is bringing us to this really complicated question about the relationships between stereotypes, representation, and wanting to, you know, not reproduce them and not fall into them. I mean, I think one question I had is like, is this is this representation of Michael correct? Like, is Michael this complexly aware <laughs> after Diversity Day? But we have seen him like struggling and trying to reconcile with like um, stere with stereotypes and assumptions. And so it yeah. totally seems like within his wheelhouse to want to he's gone to the opposite side, right? Where he's like. Mm -hmm 
you know, trying to call out other people to demonstrate his like progressive liberalism or something like that. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And then, but doing it in a way that only kind of reinforces other stereotypes, whether that's about prison or about, (laughs) you know, uh, race in general or something like that it is interesting when he says i wish josh had made a more progressive choice like a white guy who went to prison for polluting a black guy's like <laughs> what i find interesting about that like is that that would be a kind of systemic um that is a kind of systemic understanding of crime right that like to pollute a lake <laughs> like but that is a thing that like corporations do right like yeah, they, you know like we're, we see, you know, like, you know, the water in, in, you know, in Michigan or whatever is terrible yeah. in areas that are systemically, you know, where, uh, <laughs> yeah, this is actually really right. Yeah. Black people have been redlined or where, you know, um, uh, poor people are forced to live, you know, all of this kind of, so I was kind of like, oh, it's interesting. Like he's, he's almost, he's almost at a certain kind of understanding of different kinds of crime. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and then in the very next scene, he says, you know, Kevin says, I wonder what he did. And Michael says, in our society, a black man can be arrested for almost anything, which is true. Right. Yeah, <laughs> and like, and he says he was probably at a sporting event and saw some people pushing each other and he intervened. Pam says, why would he go to jail for that? And I'm like, Pam, like if if there was a a, a, a ruckus at a sporting event and like, you know, it, it is not inconceivable to me that the police should show up and and misattribute the problem to the to the person of color who's intervening to stop it. You know what I mean? I was yeah, kind of yeah. like. Michael's fantasy there is not actually incorrect. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, anyway, so so he says, what we need to do is forget about this whole Martin in prison thing. People will draw unfair conclusions about Martin or black people. Mm-hmm. So I guess that my question is, what is it that prevents Michael from sticking with that assumption, like, or that kind of point of view? Because that that actually seems like, I mean, I understand that then the story would end. But like, oh. <laughs> I, what is it in Michael's character that prevents him? Because the story could go another way, right? Somebody else could out this and yeah. then he would, he, you know, he could blow it up in some other way, but he is the one who yet again outs it. So that was one question I had for you. Mm-hmm. And then the second thing is, I was really curious what you made of Angela. I thought in some ways that this was very Impression and like, uh, I don't know, like forward thinking writing. So Angela mm-hmm. says, sure, let's protect the convicts at the at the expense of the general feeling of safety in the workplace. As a 90 pound female, notice she does not say white, um, that sits in an ill lit, rarely visited corner of the office. Naturally, I agree with that. <laughs> um, yes. To which Michael says, good. All right. Uh, I thought this version, this having Angela say that was like, I don't want to say like radical, but like pretty interesting and critical. Uh, What did you make all of this? Yes. I mean, I think that that the, the discourse of needing to protect white women against black criminals is 
so powerful. And Angela goes right into that. And you're right, without ever naming race, but I would say also without explicitly naming rape, but that being the oh. undercurrent of the yeah. fear, because yeah. it's also not just a 90 pound employee, right? So it's not just like a 90 pound male employee or something who's at risk of like getting his wallet stolen and not being able to fight over it, but a 90 pound female in an ill lit, rarely visited corner of the office. So it seems like it's also constructing the sexual vulnerability and risk for her. And so I think that that is so incredibly charged with the entire history of um, white rationalization and justification for lynching and a lot of the the language I think that ends up around justifications of imprisoning black men today. And so, yeah, I think that was really, really powerful um, language of justification that Angela was using there. Yeah, I do. I think the writing in this is pretty amazing. Just as a quick follow-up to that, like, she's kind of gaslighting not only them, but like viewers, when she says an ill-lit, rarely visited corner of the office. Like <laughs> right. it is well-lit and it is surrounded by two other, like yes. she's literally at a desk with two other people. And then we see that it is frequently visited. Um, yeah. I thought it's that was- like, Actually, even if, even if there's someone in the office who has committed some violent crime, like what are they gonna do to you here? You're really in- you really are in very safe circumstances, Angela. Mm. But yeah, you're right. I also love how Michael just takes what she says <laughs> at, face at face value. Yes, yeah. let's let's protect the convicts. Naturally, I'd agree with that. And he says, "Good, all right, <laughs> let's go with it." So, why does Michael then out Martin? So he go he tells Dwight, which you know reminded me of the merger episode or the. Mm -hmm. um, no branch closing episode where he's like can't keep a secret yeah felt like that was definitely um on brand and i maybe maybe there was something that was cut out or whatever because it's basically like the next scene after dwight saying i don't like criminals is michael kind of announcing to the office and then having the <laughs> play the game show me a white man you trust and i'll show you a black man that i trust even more um i love that game <laughs> do you think that telling Dwight so with telling Dwight I feel like Michael could not hold this information on the one hand he wants to hold it because I think he does want to protect Martin and I think he don't doesn't want people to jump to unfair conclusions on the one hand but at the same time this is a big piece of information to Michael that it seems it's just too hard to contain so that he immediately goes to Dwight and Dwight is not the person to go to if you have information about crime and you want him not to react. So Dwight says, I am greatly concerned about having a convict in the office and I do not care if that convict is white, black, Asian, German, or some kind of habsy. I do not like criminals. So it also goes to that idea of the category. And so there we see, I don't know. I mean, Dwight's kind of trying to explain it is it's like equal 
equal in terms of all races, but it's like the idea right. of the convict or of the criminal. And, you know, you do not like criminals. Um, did telling this kind of guy, did telling Dwight make it impossible for it not to get out? Because then Dwight goes right. over and he's bending over with the dollars popping out of his pocket right, right by Martin, trying to kind of lure him into stealing and i just is it is it just that by by telling dwight michael has made the situation impossible and it is out it's essentially out and so then he needs to fully out it right and so i'd be interested to watch this back to back with gay witch hunt yes watch the outing of oscar and this outing of Martin and how that works and how Michael holds this kind of information and wants to make quote, progressive choices and at the same time just can't handle it. And this is where, you know, we sort of see the parody or satire of like a kind of ill <laughs> ill conceived liberalism or something. Yeah, yeah. You know, with this kind of like because Michael is now making it entirely about race, right? Mm-hmm. Where it's like it didn't need to be. Uh mm-hmm per se, but he's like making it about whiteness and blackness and trust rather than like, yes, you know, he was a convict, but, um, you know, we live in a society with, you know, Mm -hmm. people can whatever, you know, pay their, pay for their crimes. Or I don't know what he would say, but you know, yeah. Yeah. um, He's not going to talk about restorative justice or abolition, (laughs) but you know, he's going to say he's, you know, we give people another chance or something like that. Right. Um, but instead of doing that, he makes it all about race. And um, that sets up one of my favorite moments, which is the close your eyes picture of convict. What's he wearing? <laughs> nothing special. Baseball cap on backwards, baggy pants. He says something ordinary like, yo, that's shizzle. Okay, now slowly open your eyes again. <laughs> Who are you picturing? A black man? Wrong. That was a white woman. Surprised? Well, shame on you. <laughs> and this is... <laughs> I mean, there are a lot of things that I find really funny about this, but just at a character level, it is classic Michael to say, what's he wearing? And then be like, well, actually, it's a white woman forgetting that he used the pronouns. And then similarly saying, close your eyes, picture this, open your eyes. Who are you picturing? (laughs) Like, It's just nonsense and so funny. Um, But then also it is definitely like, a, I guess, a parody of a kind of gotcha uh progressivism or something or that wants to be progressive you know um uh uh i don't know i it's it's uh, it made me laugh yeah especially because martin's like hey why don't i just tell you you know Mm -hmm. i don't mind it was a stupid mistake i was working in finance i got involved in some insider training so i spent a little time in the clink you know and yeah yeah like he's willing to talk about it he does not feel shame and he doesn't see it as he, he's not framing it in the terms of race that Michael is. Um, mm-hmm. Anyway, yeah, I was curious what you made of when Martin is actually kind of talking about it and the fact that it's insider training. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's the most high end white collar. Yeah. Crime, <laughs> which is perfect. There's this tension almost between Michael and the writers of the show in some way because when he asks why did it have to be a black guy 
on the one hand, in the world of the show, that was Josh's choice, but sort of taking a step out. It's the writers of the show and the casting and all of that that make it a Black guy. So there's like this conflict between them and Michael. And he's raising that question, why would you pick this when this is such a stereotype? But so it seems that they're doing something and coming back and it being a white color and then also very white associated yeah. type of crime. Totally. So he, he's kind of in the category of a black guy polluting some other guy's lake. <laughs> he's operating at that level. I mean, and the fact that Kevin is like, it sounds an awful lot like what I do here every day. Yeah. You know, it undermines the exceptionality of Martin's crime. It does, yeah. You know, and also further undermines any kind of like racial narrative you might have about it or want to have. Yeah. Um, at the same time, I was also like, wait a minute, what is Kevin's job and how could he possibly be doing insider trading? I was like, if he's embezzling money, that would be different. Like, yeah. isn't insider trading like knowing... Uh, I shouldn't speculate, <laughs> but like, isn't it, you know, like you're, you're buying and selling stocks on the basis of how, of your inside knowledge about the company's like moves. Right. I, I don't yeah. Know. Yeah. It made me wonder if Kevin was actually doing it or if he doesn't actually have that good of an, an understanding <laughs> of what Martin does or of what he himself does. Which is also kind of amazing. Um, <laughs> good. Yeah. Good either way. So we move then into the real bit, right? Which is the, what was prison like? Yeah. It's not terrible, boring. We do the same thing every day, but at least we got outdoors time. And this begins the whole kind of like, basically, it sounds like it's better. Prison sounds better than Dunder Mifflin, which Pam is saying, I think, presumably to troll Michael, right? Um, <laughs> but also this raises this kind of question that I was wondering what you thought about, which is the, what is the relationship between work and prison mm -hmm. and wage labor and, um, yeah, like, uh, the coerciveness of it. Mm -hmm. and I don't know. Yeah. I mean, cause I, cause I feel like, you know, on the one hand, the joke here is as Toby will later sort of say, they're teasing you. Like, of course, this is better than a prison, we get to have parties, we get to go home to our families, we have social lives. And in that, I was kind of interested in, A, like what, what it is we imagine that prisoners don't have or can't have mm -hmm. versus what we supposedly can have outside of, you know, in, in free society, as it were. Mm -hmm. um, but then also, like, we do have a kind of persistent like narrative or, or, or not narrative, like a kind of cliche analogy where it's like working is like being in prison or whatever, but in a wage labor society in which you don't actually have the, you know, unless you own capital, you don't have the freedom to not work. So mm -hmm. there is a kind of coercive nature to wage labor and to capitalism. And is in, in as, in as much as capitalism thrives on an exploited underclass that must be paid far less than their labor produces, then many people are in effect um, dragooned into like, you know, repetitive, mindless, mind numbing, soul crushing labor. And so anyway, I kept 
wondering like what is the episode actually doing there in this mm -hmm. with that is it critiquing that we make that analogy or is it actually pointing out that well to some degree there might be prisons that are nicer than many jobs i don't know <laughs> what did you make <laughs> um couple things let's see so i mean the idea that kind of critique or that that idea like that this is pr prison is better than this is sort of yeah okay so i guess the 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 issue is that there are variations of coercion right and of like what is what is coercive and so it sounds on the one hand really annoying for somebody like pam to say oh this is like prison and it's annoying to michael because it's critical of his workplace but if you have actually been incarcerated i think i would find it annoying in a very different way like there's a way to say that there are problems with work that don't compare it to prison right. just like just like um I, i'm thinking about the the critiques of of feminism like of, of statements from white feminists that compared the oppression of women to slavery right and it being like mm, no okay no these are not the same <laughs> like, let's be clear about this these are not the same we can talk about problems on both sides but these are not the same so so yeah, I think that there's kind of, there are issues to take with that comparison, but I was thinking a lot actually back to the question you raised last time, is Dunder Mifflin a character? Mm. And here we have Dunder Mifflin as a character and we have prison as a character. Like mm. what is the idea of prison? And Martin has been in for white collar crime. So he has had a very different experience than you know people are who are in for drug crimes or whatever you know whatever other other kinds of things like that's sort of notorious right and that usually it is associated with white criminals but that yeah. white collar crime is going to typically get a kind of easier context and lighter sentence and all of that stuff um but so it made me wonder what you think about that idea of the character and how you see in this Dunder Mifflin as a character and how the idea of the prison itself as a character kind of puts it in relief or how it how it ends up competing with Dunder Mifflin or I don't know what's your take on the character of these places and institutions basically well I think that's such a great question and I think that First, it is really interesting that it is Pam that kind of trolls Michael and gets this going because Pam is the wage worker, right? Like she is not salaried. Mm -hmm. And so her, the monotony and redundancy of her job is, you know, um, like it is repetitive in a way that mm -hmm. perhaps the salespeople who get to leave or whatever isn't, you know, um, Obviously, though, that doesn't mean that it's like prison. But what's interesting is like as um, Martin describes what it is that the prison has, it definitely throws into relief what it is that um, some might desire. And so mm -hmm. the thing that stood out to me was um, 
you know, watercolor classes, they have art classes, they have business classes, um, Harvard Business School guys taught there and went on to do extraordinary things in business, you know, so like there's this idea there of the prison, not only as a place of, um, that has intellectual and artistic culture or community, mm -hmm. it is also in this account, one of transformation or achievement, like yeah. you go there, you are like not simply rehabilitated for your crime, but you're like rejuvenated. <laughs> um, uh, in, this episode in... then offer a critique of the prison system or an endorsement. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I don't think it offers a critique. I think it. I don't know. I mean, yeah, I don't know. You know, um, but whatever. So there's so that kind of comes into relief in contrast to Dunder Mifflin, where it is pure monotony, right? There is no transformation, there is no betterment, there is no sense that the skills that Pam has are going to be honored or valued or 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 cultured or nurtured or in some way. Mm -hmm. And then more things come out, right? Like so, the um, uh, there was outdoors time. Um, what was the other thing that he mentioned? Oh, the TV is like nicer. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it, it's just kind of interesting of like what it is that they're trying to compare, you know, and it's like, yeah, of course you don't get outdoors time at your job, right? Like you work nine to five or whatever, you get a break and you go home and that's, and then you get to run on the weekends like Toby does or something yeah. like, that, you know, um, so anyway, Michael can't see the difference that you're talking about. Like he can only see it as if they are comparable institutions that are somehow in competition for one another. Uh -huh. um, and uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I guess those are my initial thoughts. But then what does that tell us about Dunder Mifflin as a character? I think that it tells us that Michael sees the office, yeah, as like a space. He wants his employees to be his family, but especially wants them to love Dunder Mifflin to the degree that he does, which is something yeah. that I keep thinking about is like when you like when you're in a place or in an institution and like other people don't like it as much as you do or vice versa, you like it less than others do. And mm -hmm. this desire for alignment, like we should all love it to the same degree or like we must all like kind of share the same affect about it I don't know yeah and that's kind of what he wants to align it's like okay I'll make this place more like the things that you want that Martin's <laughs> describing and that will somehow make you in you know feel the way that I do or something yeah. but anyway Michael says these people don't realize how lucky they are this office is the American dream and they would rather yeah. hold yeah. To which I was going to say, back to your argument about this as the great American story, you must have perked up at that line. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. It. I, I was trying to reflect on what, like, what is this saying about the American dream? How is the show commenting on America here? And it feels like there's just, uh, suggests that there's a kind of mediocrity to the American dream. Like that it's just to have, and I'm not sure about what I ultimately feel about this because it feels like in, it's in some ways, if, if usually the idea of the American dream is about, you know, you can work hard and you can succeed and you can have a great life. 
but also the expectation that you can be very financially successful and you know that it's not just about kind of having enough and having a sort of stable middle class life but that you can have more than that this seems to suggest that it's just that like this isn't a for the for the people at the office there's nobody there except for michael i guess for whom it's really a dream job right and you know for everybody it's like you've got a stable solid income you've got all of the things that you need but it's not a really fancy really big life in that way Mm. so it's like i don't know on the one hand it connects what michael's saying that this is this office is the american dream that this in some ways connects to the sort of standard ideals of the american dream but at the same time it seems like a sort of muted version of it Mm. and i don't know there's some i don't know quite what to make of it but there's something interesting about that I'm struck, like, as the episode goes on, you know, Michael, like, he slips back into certain patterns, like, and we've already kind of talked about the, like, he initially wants to avoid racial stereotypes and then runs right in, head first into them, I guess. Yeah, yeah. To a degree, or, like, kind of, yeah, yeah. Um, or is, like, trying to overcompensate, you know. In a yeah, way. yeah. And the other thing that happens is, like, <clears throat> like, there's, it's, Martin is not ashamed and he's like, yeah, I'll talk about it. Yeah. And he has a unique singular experience. And I guess it's not singular, right? But like, it's a unique experience that they're surprised yeah. about, right? Yeah. Michael can't accept that experience because um, it sort of like, you know, makes them potentially think or articulate their disappointments and frustrations with the office. Mm-hmm. As a result, his language becomes increasingly binary. So even mm-hmm. in the sentence, the office is this office is the American dream, and they would rather be in the hole. And like he <laughs> then would go on to paint prison as a kind of hellhole, which yeah. directly contrasts like what Martin has said and experienced. Yeah, like, Michael needs it to be. Yes, you know it needs to be a nightmare. So as to make the office. And I think about this in terms of just like how, you know, sometimes it feels like we need to, like, I don't know. I've heard people say like, uh, we'll complain about our job or whatever. And then it's like, well, it could be worse. You know, you could be shoveling shit. You could be in prison. You could be, you know, whatever, dead or something like that, you know? Mm -hmm. And this, I don't know, need to sort of like the, the, as if the only way you can sort of redeem the one thing is to denigrate the other. Okay. Mm -hmm. But then also it does sort of feel sometimes like when I hear some people talk about prison and prisoners, like it, they need it to, they want it to be a hellhole um, Mm -hmm. in the, in the United States, because as if like, if they were, if prisoners are granted or, you know, any kind of humanity, then that somehow like undermines the intensity of their punishment that is supposedly, you know, justice or something like that. But I sometimes think that what's at stake in it is also like, if, if, if we imagine prison as a is not all that essentially different than the outside social world, mm-hmm. then we would be like, what the fuck is this? Like, you know, it's just like, um, 
and then perhaps people would rightly make more demands on what what everyday life should entail and involve, you know? Yeah. Um, I don't know. That, that's just something that I'm struck by in Michael's kind of yeah. fantasy of, of prison, which I guess is based on TV shows. <laughs> Part of that fantasy of prison that I wanted to talk about is the way that it includes... Well, let's go to a quote. <laughs> let's go to a quote. And... This, oh, where did it go? I think I wrote it down. Oh, here, let me find it. So this is the way that Michael represents his, his prison experience. Or I'm sorry, that prison Mike represents his experience. And directly connecting this to Ryan. So he says, when Angela kind of protests, she says, do you really expect us to believe you're somebody else? He says, do you really expect me not to push you up against the wall, biatch? All right. Hey, hey, hey. That's just the way we talk in the clink. Been a lot of fun to talk about prison today, but I am here to scare you straight. I am here to scare you straight. In prison, you are somebody's bitch. Oh, and you, points to Ryan, you, my friend, would be the belle of the ball. Don't drop the soap. Don't drop the soap. And then Ryan says, Michael, please. And Michael starts making kissing noises. Oh, my God. We just got to read more of it. Where where did you learn all of this? Jim says, internet. <laughs> Jim says, so not prison, Michael. And prison. 50-50, uh, both. Look, prison stinks is what I'm saying. It's not like you can go home and recharge your batteries and come back in the morning and be with your friends having fun in the office. What do you do, prison Mike? I stole and I robbed and I kidnapped the president's son and killed him for ransom. That is quite the rap sheet, prison Mike. And I never got caught neither. <laughs> Well, you're in prison, but mm. <laughs> it's so funny. <laughs> so tell me, um, I just want to read the rest of it. Gruel omelets, dementors. Um, <laughs> it's really funny. Uh, uh, so, well, and then I should say within that, it's, it is, it's great writing, I think, because he mm -hmm. says this place is freaking awesome, which, by the way, is the quote that whenever... Peacock advertises the office to me. They are yeah, always. Yeah. Yeah. People are awesome. Your boss is nice. Everyone seems to get along. People are tolerant. People who've jumped to conclusions can redeem themselves. Nobody is nobody's bitch. Mm -hmm. What I find interesting there is he is narrating what he values about the office and his mm -hmm. ideal version of it. And there is actually something pretty sweet about it. You know, yeah, and yeah. I mean, I suppose pathetic as well in the sense that he's saying your boss is nice. He's saying I'm nice. But the yeah. fact that he says everyone seems to get along, I actually think is an interesting statement because he doesn't say everybody does get along. Huh. In the that he yeah. says every, your boss is nice. He is allowing for the possibility that like people may not actually like each other, but they seem to get along. I don't know. I, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But so yeah. why do you hate prison, Mike? <laughs> I don't. I don't hate prison Mike and I'm very interested in prison Mike. And one of the things I want to go to is perhaps the most sensitive portion of uh, prison Mike's little speech. And that's when he says that in prison, you're somebody's bitch. And he looks at Ryan, he tells Ryan, he'd be the bell of the ball. Don't drop the soap. And so, I mean, he's kind of making a rape threat to Ryan, right? Right. Or it's like that this is what you should fear and this is what would happen to you in 
prison. I feel like the person who is probably most frightened by prison Mike was Ryan. Um, but the thing I found fascinating was the way that our idea of prison, because that even that phrase, don't drop the soap, like the idea of prison that we have, I think flips the script of rapeability, which is the thing that we also saw from Angela. Like the idea that in the office, so the fear is about Angela and the 90 pound female in an ill-lit corner, but in the prison scenario, it becomes Ryan. Yeah. Who's vulnerable to being sexually assaulted. And so there was just something really... I don't know, that just made me think about that, like what what the prison means in terms of who is vulnerable yeah, or who we think of, who we perceive as vulnerable and the way that, that the prison also, the idea of prison opens for prison Mike, this possibility of making Ryan his bitch. Well, there, I mean, to go back to your longstanding, you know, Michael is potentially queer. There's a queer reading of Michael. I was like, here you go. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Is, uh, you know, just really interesting because, yeah, not only does it allow him in this kind of um, ventriloquism slash performance. Yeah. To essentially, yeah, like. Uh, objectify Ryan, right? Develop the ball yeah. and also threaten him. Um, yeah. I mean, I think, yeah, like it is always interesting to me that the only context in which men can be imagined as vulnerable to sexual violence or sexual assault is in the context of prison. Yeah. Um, and when it is brought up, it is brought up in exactly the ways that Michael is sort of bringing it up as a kind of relishing threat. Um, yeah. And uh, rather than like, oh, you know, we should work on, you know, a bodily autonomy and and rape culture in prisons or something like that. Mm -hmm. It's like, you know, this is a just threat for your status as criminal, um, regardless yeah. of, you know, yeah. you're, you're inhuman. And to be rapeable is to be not seen as a human being, right? And mm -hmm. so, so that's interesting to me, but also interesting is that he goes to this, so it's Martin says something like um, that he doesn't uh, that wasn't my experience. There were certain elements of what you performed I've seen on television, but it didn't remind me of my time in prison. Um, and uh, which is what sets Michael off to like lock them in. Uh, we'll mm -hmm. have to talk about that. But it's just interesting that um, he's drawing all of this from um, television and our television representations of prison that I can think of are like Oz, you know, that was a big like HBO show, I think, or whatever at the, around the time of the office. I don't think we had anything like Orange is the New Black yet. Um, but yeah, prison is hellscape. And then, or, or um, Shawshank Redemption, you know, yeah. prison as, as hellscape uh, and, you know, filled with rape. Um, but then the other thing we have is the scared straight kind of thing like yes. i'm thinking of the i don't know you know your jerry springers your your whatever type talk shows where they bring on wayward teens and then they bring out convicts who shout at them or who literally like simulate prison screaming in their face as a way to scare them into changing their behavior mm -hmm. i was really curious what you made of re-invoking that trope so the scared straight idea is that they would take young people who were 
considered at risk of ending up in prison, right, to a prison and have some of the people who were there talk to them, like, basically to scare them out of criminal behavior, right? Right. So what do I make of this? I don't know. <laughs> I do I mean, not. It definitely is rehabilitation, right? Or whatever. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Or a, a pre, a, 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 what do you call it? Like a, anyway, like anticipatory. <laughs> yeah. 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 Anticipatory rehabilitation. It's another, we have another genre that Michael draws on. So he, for his own videos and his own programming has done the Blair Witch Project, he's done SNL, he's doing this kind of reality television talk show vibe thing. Have you ever seen Scared Straight? No, I don't think so. Yeah, the only thing I, I didn't even know it was like a show on its own. Um, yeah, yeah, it was, I looked, I looked into it a little bit. It was a show on its own. And I think going all the way back to starting in like 78 or something. Damn. Yeah, I just saw, you know, like, like I was saying, like the um, what do you call it? The like a Jerry Springer or a, what other what were other Ricky Lake, you know, those kind of talk shows that were on at like three or four o'clock in the afternoon and they would have like a version of this. But I've never yeah. seen the actual show itself. Yeah. So there was or maybe it was a docu documentary originally in 78. But then I saw clips of versions of it from the 90s. Mm. It seems like something that had its particular origin, but then was also repeated in lots of forms. And is this idea that you get exposed to the reality of prison and you are scared enough that you will stay at Dunder Mifflin. I guess we see with this that Michael has taken a shift in his tactics from wanting initially hoping to be able to persuade them that this place is better than prison mm -hmm. to then you're taking them out for yard time like okay i'm going to give you these things but you're going to see how actually they're uncomfortable and you don't really want them and now with prison mike he's going to try to scare them into coming along with him just quickly reading a little bit about the scared straight thing and what's interesting mm -hmm. among other things is well first the documentary aired on television in the late 70s uncensored it marked the first time that the words fuck and shit were broadcast on many networks that's kind of fascinating yeah. but also um i just think this is great so uh april 1978 a professor of rutgers school of criminal justice does mm -hmm. a test of the scared straight program concluded that children who attended were more likely to make to commit crimes than those who did not a meta-analysis of the program and other similar programs found they actively increased crime rates and led to higher reoffense rates compared to control groups that did not receive the intervention um the uk college of policing said there's very strong evidence very strong quality evidence that it causes an increase in crime 2011 Justice Department officials wrote an op-ed saying that they were potentially harmful and ineffective. Um, so, damn. Makes sense Michael would use this method then. It's interesting. I'm trying to think if the, does the show um, in some way demonstrate why it would actually increase crime rather than increase <laughs> it? I don't know if I have an argument about that, but, uh, but it is interesting that it, that 
it leads to Michael committing a crime, which is locking them all in the, like, <laughs> essentially, you know, kidnapping them, right? Like, yeah, against Michael their will. You can't do that. Yeah, 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 you cannot do that. <laughs> Michael does get himself really into some trouble here. He says, if you think prison is so wonderful, then enjoy prison. They're such babies. I'm going to leave them in there until they can appreciate what it's like to have freedom. And if this doesn't bother them, then I am out of ideas. Hmm. Um, what is it like to have freedom? Is this a question you're asking me? Yeah. <laughs> no, we've already gone too long. I don't know. But it's just an interesting idea of what he thinks freedom is. Like being locked in the conference room is a denial of freedom. Yeah, I yeah. Mean, in a literal way, you know, I suppose. Yeah. But. <laughs> hmm. That's. Hmm. It is interesting the way that ideas of freedom and coercion do operate within a workplace and the navigation of all of that. Yeah, I'm totally going to revise and regret my questions about the analogy between wage labor and prison but <laughs> it why, is the, why would you revise regret because that's the question that they're raising like that's the thing that they're they're saying is that this is a prison they different they yeah. have different metaphors to compare it so for michael it's a family for pam it's a prison everybody's metaphor has is revealing of problems yeah yeah, yeah 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 <laughs> And it is interesting. I mean, I do think that the the way that we think of America is like you have the freedom to choose the work that you do, right? Like, and so that reverses, you know, to critique that discourse places us in the position of showing how you don't actually have freedom or you don't have as much freedom as you think. But it is like yeah. the, the 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 propaganda for wage labor is is basically like, oh, look how free you are. You know, mm -hmm. like you can anyway. Yeah. So okay. I, I still don't feel like we've gotten to the heart of your like not loving prison, Mike, because it's the funniest fucking shit ever. So oh, it is. That. So it is hilarious. I think I just find the accent really annoying. Oh, is he like a Jersey guy that it seems to me that that's kind of what he's supposed to be. Right? Italian kind of. Yeah, kind of an Italian Brooklyn? New Jersey guy who's gotten himself into some trouble. So I really think the only issue, the only problem I have with prison mike or that makes me not able to just fully delight in him is the annoyingness of the accent but overall i do think it is hilarious and really is in some ways peak office because of the way that it is both funny and taps into like really serious shit how it's like this whole yeah. episode right like this is about race and racism yeah, yeah, it's yeah. about rape in prison it's about gender like it's about these really serious really heavy things and it's also so funny tyler the question i have for you though is did you ever have a bandana phase i did i feel like you look good in a bandana that okay thank I you you could do that thank you so much i okay i mean first yeah, I'm uh okay. So first year of college, I went on a like Habitat for Humanity trip to uh -huh. North Carolina. And um, you know, while you're working on the site, like yeah. lots of people were like putting bandanas 
kind of in the way that Michael basically does, right? Where it's kind of around and then folded in basically sort of yeah. ish. Yeah. Uh, I really liked the way I looked in that look and uh, definitely came back to college trying to rock a bandana um, for some time. And uh, that might've explained, you know, why I was single, but uh, I thought it looked good. I don't know, Tyler. I think that- It was a red uh, bandana. A red bandana. Okay, I was gonna ask, what's your color? Purple. Prison Mike chooses purple. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't know because I'm colorblind. I didn't know it was purple. Oh, yeah, it's an interesting choice. That must have been intentional, right? To kind of undermine any quickness yeah, <laughs> to it or whatever, as if they needed to. But yeah, yeah, that like trying so hard to be hard, and then it's just <laughs> not. Also, it's sort of the bandana. Also, sort of seems. Like it's one of those pre-molded kind of things because it's not soft. You know, he yeah. doesn't put it onto his head and tie it. He puts it on like a hat. Yeah, you're right. You're right. <laughs> I only have two more points here. Um, one of them is just to say that it is kind of interesting to me that at Michael. Okay, so Michael says. Uh, to, so Toby shows up and he says, Michael, why is everyone locked in the conference room? Michael says they were very disrespectful to me and to the office. And Martin has had a bad influence to think that I gave him the benefit of the doubt. And then in his final speech, he says, Michael went from being a new guy from Stanford to a convict to my friend back to a convict, yeah. then to a kind of nuisance, actually, to be quite honest, and finally to a quitter. And I will not miss him. And that is not because he is black. Um, <laughs> and what I find really interesting about that is that like Mike, yeah, I I feel like that's the kind of interesting satire or criticism of a kind of um, surface liberalism mm -hmm. that like actually is still, if not racist, like, you know, making all kinds of stereotypical assumptions so that it can reinforce a certain narrative um, mm -hmm. or want, wants, wants to, I don't know. He, he basically like goes from giving Martin the benefit of the doubt to now saying he's been a bad influence and I never should have given him the benefit of the doubt, you know, yeah. and like yeah. framing him as a convict and as a nuisance. And, you know, like he's projecting all these narratives and stereotypes onto Martin. Um, so I don't know. I was kind of, I was wondering if you had thoughts on how it kind of circles back around and like twists there. Because mm -hmm. um, that was, I don't know. I thought that that was an interesting move. It is an interesting move. Hmm. I'm trying to think through what it is that makes so I guess for for Angela, Martin is automatically out because he's a convict. For Michael, Michael wants to stick with him, but like he doesn't uh, he doesn't behave. It's kind of like this with the new people and with Tony in the last episode. Like Michael wants to be progressive and he wants to be welcoming and he wants to be benevolent and that kind of thing but with probably pretty constrained expectations then for how people are going to behave within that 
So when he's expanding the family and he's the dad, there are expectations for how people will kind of fall in line with him as the dad. And then for how Martin will be a convict slash for a reformed convict slash Dunder Mifflin employee. And ultimately it seems like his biggest thing, like the biggest crime you can commit against Michael is a violation of the office and of the sort of family system that he is trying to set up with the office. And so I guess it's that, that Martin breaks. And again, Martin quits very rightly. So, but so that's the thing, right? That he becomes a quitter. So that's also a deal breaker for Michael. Cause he was a nuisance. Michael can deal with, an, he says uh, he went to kind of a nuisance actually, to be completely honest. And, and the reason he's a nuisance because he doesn't like confirm Michael's fantasy narrative, you know, or yeah. toe the line. Yeah. But I do feel like, I don't know, I feel like, I'm, I don't know, I'm like loath to give an example of this because I can't think of one offhand, but mm-hmm. just definitely feel like I've heard, I've seen people who want to be progressive mm-hmm. sort of like kind of overcompensate in the way that Michael is doing and then yeah. blame or like kind of become very critical and judgmental of the person that they have so generously given the benefit of the doubt to quote unquote, you know, Mm -hmm. um, blame them for, for like, you know, conforming to whatever stereotype they had in the first place or that they supposedly, you know what I mean? Like, I don't Mm -hmm. know, something there like, um, yeah, I'm not articulating it well, but, um, this, this narrative too, of him going from being the new guy from Stanford to a convict, to my friend, back to a convict. The problem, so Michael initially did not want to out him and didn't want people in the office to know. And if people in the office hadn't known, it would have been fine because the problem was the way that he represented himself as a convict and as prison not being that bad. And so oh, it is kind of painful. It's like, Michael, dude, just don't tell Dwight. Like, just hold on to this. And could have worked out and been okay. Do you but, think there should have been a... Oh, sorry. No, I, I got nowhere else to go. Do you think there should have been a scene with Mike, with Martin quitting or, you know, that we should have gotten a window into that? I don't know. I think it's fine not. I think I feel very fine just having the kind of after after scene yeah the walk out and that being enough part of me wanted it partly i guess to i don't know i mean they need to get rid of these characters from stanford and yeah. that's part of or i guess they they want to do that and mm-hmm. and so that's one background here but there was a part of me that kind of wanted something uh and i don't know why i wanted it because I don't think it would have made it funnier or better. And, it, and it's obvious why Martin's leaving, but mm-hmm. I don't know. But the only other point I had uh, is the Toby of it all. Um, yeah. Because this to me, I think this is peak Toby. This is the Toby that I've been dreaming of. Um, and I think this is a rare moment, possibly the only moment in which Michael listens to Toby. 
it mm-hmm. demonstrates that Toby actually has wisdom to share if anybody yeah. would like him. Yeah. Um, and it's there is a sweetness in their interaction that I find like incredibly charming. And I think yeah. it's the way these actors play it. So yeah. um, Toby says, you know, they're teasing you. I mean, obviously this is a much nicer place than an actual prison. We get paid to be here. We go home afterwards and have social lives. We We have parties here. They're teasing you to be funny. Mm-hmm. And I love the way that he re- like um, delivers those lines with the stilted rhythm and, yeah. the kind of, you know, he's accumulating r- reasons or explanations. Mm-hmm. Um, but the implication, and I, I think that I thought, um, I thought that he said this, but he doesn't say this, but in, but the subtext is kind of like the people that tease you to be funny in this way are your friends or at least like friend yeah. Jason. That's not to say that all teasing is um uh, good hearted and that yeah. like you know teasing is is a dangerous weapon, right? But mm-hmm. uh, it does feel like Toby is reframing it as like, you know, yes, Pam is trolling you. Um yeah. but it's not so mean spirited as you're taking yeah. You know, you're missing the fact that there's a joke here and you can choose to be in on that joke or not. Yeah. And yeah, and it's I find it so sweet because it's a way of of it's like, man, if only there had been a Toby when Michael was a little kid in elementary school or mm-hmm. whatever, hanging out with the lunch lady, yeah. you know, if he could have. But on the other hand, maybe I'm overplaying how teasing how this version of teasing could actually be a way of bonding rather than a way of um, hmm. uh, isolating and, and hurting. Mm-hmm. But Michael doesn't say anything. He just sort of smiles and then opens up the door and is like, okay, nutcases, get out of here. <laughs> you know, gives them and makes a joke out of it too. Um, yeah. And I think that that is so sweet that there's no, he doesn't say thank you, Toby, or whatever. I don't know. Uh-huh. What yeah. I haven't thought much about that. And I really, I really like it. I think you're right. That is a very sweet and tender kind of moment and really helpful for Michael and reframing it. Did you think about it? Cause you hate Toby? No, no, I think like, I liked it. I liked it. I just, um, I think, I think you've, you've made a very strong case for the power of Toby in this episode. Anything else? I have, I have only of two final object-based points. Corey will be happy. The first. So these are for Corey. First, during their outdoor time, Michael goes and opens his trunk. <laughs> and he pulls out this little weight that's two and a half pounds. <laughs> <laughs> so I love this also in this episode when he's going to try to be prison Mike and be really tough and hard. And it is the tiniest weight. Um, and he says, I'm not going for bulk. I'm going for tone. <laughs> I got no great insight about it. I just thought it was hilarious. And there was a really big time when there was that idea, like, you know, if you're going for tone, not bulk, go with the light weights and just lift them a lot of times. And Michael would certainly have to lift that two and a half pound weight a lot of times. So that was one thing. 
The other object that stood out to me, this is when Dwight is over in Martin's corner and is bending over with the dollars out of his the back of his pants. But right behind, I've noticed this in past episodes, right behind where Martin is sitting in that corner, there is this big old typewriter. And in my office, we have the exact same big old typewriter just in a corner wow. of the copy room. And I wondered how many offices have that useless old typewriter and just no one is willing to go. Mm. Although it's going to be me maybe now. This is going to give me some inspiration. Someone just needs to say, okay, it's time for us to get rid of this. <laughs> needs to move on. What is that typewriter doing there? How many typewriters across America are just sitting in corners going unused? But like, what do you do with it? It's such a big piece of junk at this point. We have got to do some research and find out like what the model and make of that is and was it like mass distributed yeah. or something i'm gonna yeah put yeah. that on my revise and regret list we should look into that well tyler i think it's chili's time let's go to the dundies all right um i think everybody can guess who's getting <laughs> my dundee and it's uh let's see it's for the um i don't know the sweetness award and it goes to Toby Flenderson uh, for that, you know, pep talk that, you know, it's just so sweet the way that he is for once a person that can diffuse Michael's defenses and Michael hears it. And I think that that is just a really lovely moment. And uh, so, yeah, um, the sweetness award. Nice. I'm going to give out two Dundies today. The first one is the new face of white collar crime award. And that goes to Martin Nash. <laughs> <laughs> I just, <laughs> I just really think he does a very good job in this. Um, so, so that goes to Martin Nash and the second award, the wise advice award. <gasps> Obi Flenderson. Whoa. I have this planned, but Tyler, you really convinced me that, that Toby was crucial and, wonderful there in his wisdom and kindness so so Toby, this is the first award i think i've ever given to toby we'll see if it's the last and in fear i mean we did have a, a thing where we were like our dundee should be linked to the plot in some way and i'm wondering if that do we have to give a minor dundee to josh for hiring martin in the first place <laughs> well, i don't want to i don't want to give josh anything so josh um, gets nothing <laughs> all right the next episode is uh, season three, episode 10, a Benihana Christmas. Mm-hmm. It's going to be a two-parter. Oh, it is? Yeah, it's a two-part Christmas episode. So, oh. Tyler, there's a lot for you to look forward to. Will we break up our episode into two parts? What do you think? I think we're going to need it. Okay, okay. All right. <laughs> we well, spent you... almost three hours on this one episode. Yeah. I don't think we can do two in one. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. Long-time listeners will know that I love a holiday episode. So. You love a holiday episode. Yes. All right. Well, I can't wait. Thanks for listening, everybody. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.